Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. everybody welcome to this inaugural episode of true crime and cocktails season three what we didn't even let you know this was happening at the end of the last episode because truthfully we didn't know (laughs) um as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you doing you know i'm great especially when we fly by the seat of our pants i feel like that's where we really shine I agree. And listen, here, dear listeners, the truth is, is that I realized we had done 31 episodes in season two. And I was like, much like Baskin and Robbins, we've sampled all these flavors. Let's get on to something new. Um, (laughs) We decided to start a season three. Now, truthfully, season three, we're not giving it any sort of addition because we don't want to be constrained. Right. We want to be free birds. Yeah, we want we. This is the moment. Open the cage door. Baby's gonna fly. Let us fly. Yeah. Um. So that means there'll be famous fatalities. There could be unsolved mysteries. It could be serial killers. Anything under the sun. Um. We just don't want to be boxed in. So we're just simply calling ourselves true crime and cocktails from now on. Season three, truthfully, may never end. Is the other <laughs> is the other thing to know. Uh, unless, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we get struck by something again off the seat of our pants at some point. This is kind of what we're deciding to do moving forward. And I feel good about it. Do you feel good about oh, it? Oh, yeah. And that's not just the multiple alcohols I have going. Um, <laughs> I think it's a great idea because, sure, we did the we had unsolved mysteries that we could do for the first season. We branched out to something new and we found we liked the something new, but a little bit. Some, we We want... If if I could mime nicely, I would to be like the yeah. box. 
we don't like it. I, that wasn't miming at all. That was more raising a roof. Um, <laughs> the point <laughs> is, if we can get out of a box where we can just be whatever we want to be, yeah, let's, let's just be our true selves. Be our true selves. We don't want to be boxed in. Uh, and what that means is that the sky's the limit, which makes me very happy. Yeah. You know? Oh, I can't no wait. Rules. I can't wait. Oh, I. It's like we've gone 10 years in the future and these old broads yes. have come out. There's no rules. They're kicking doors in. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. There isn't going to be a name for this season, but I think if there was, it would be True Crime and Cocktails, No Rules, No Boundaries edition. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> but there are boundaries because obviously we're tr- we try and be respectful as much as possible. Um, but, but the other thing I wanted to mention is that we should also commemorate that this is some exciting news. We have joined Misfit Toys Podcast Network. Yeah. Which is so exciting. There are really cool podcasts we got approached to join and uh i i was extremely flattered obviously uh never not funny jimmy pardo he's a part of it Uh, amazing doug benson doug loves movies jen kirkman's podcast the todd glass show i mean these are some i mean there's tignataro and cheryl hines podcast there's so many amazing podcasts on this network and it was truly i was i was moved when we were approached and asked to join and so i i just want to give a shout out and say we're so glad to be here it's nice. It's nice. I mean, it still looks like my house, but like, <laughs> but it feels, but it feels nice to know that mentally it's somewhere right. else. In my mind, it's a lot cleaner than what my house is. A hundred percent. And also just the name Misfit Toys alone felt like it really was right up our alley. So yeah, it just made sense for us. Um, couple more pieces of business uh, I got to get to before we get into anything else. Update, update, update. <laughs> now, this is breaking news uh, on the day that we're recording this. So if something else has come up between this record and when this episode airs, we'll, we'll get to it. Okay? Yeah. Just trust us. We'll get to it as best we can. But there has been an update to the Madeline McCann case that is cuckoo bananas I am losing my mind because, for those of you who don't remember, if you haven't listened to our Madeline McCann episode, go back and give it a listen. Um, I came into that episode staunchly believing one thing, and Christy swayed me through her impeccable research, bringing in this new suspect named Christian B. This is the name of this character. Yeah. And... The one thing that Christy was fixated on in the episode, if I recall correctly, was he had rented a home, I believe. It wasn't, he didn't buy it, right? I believe it was, he had rented that home that he had lived in for some time in Germany. It's tough to say because I, someone said they purchased it from him. So it's possible that he did buy it, it, but. Okay, well, there's some speculation there. But the bottom line is, is that at the time that we recorded that episode of the podcast, it had not been searched. And Christy, I remember vividly <laughs> you bringing up wanting to drive a backhoe to dig up that <laughs> underneath that house yourself. Yes. And yes. dear listeners, the update today is, guess what? They did. And guess what? They found a dungeon under that house. So yeah. 
first of all, we already know that this guy has been uh, connected to some pretty horrific things, but it just was such a amazing moment. I again, I'm, I am uh, could not be prouder. <laughs> I feel like I I just want to scream from the rooftops sure. that I was like, she knew it. She knew. We talked about it here months ago. It's you know, I mean, he had the multiple properties, and it. All of the ones they actually checked, they found something. Usually it was just like buried under the bones of a dog that he had buried. There was USB drives or there was, you know, something that had videos or pictures or they had something. They found something everywhere. So I was just like, why aren't we looking at the one place he had at the time that she went missing? Right. And that he apparently sold very quickly and the person he sold it to was very uncomfortable being around him and had no idea anything and only recently found out that there may or may not be something we don't know. And their reaction was, oh, I can't think about the idea of there being a body under my house. Please look. And so they went to the police and were like, please, just just look. I mean, wow. Well, uh, dear listeners, again, I am I am just as a I am a proud mother. If I was a mother of uh, of Christy, which would make me her cousin, sister and mother, which is getting into a world that we can't. But um, I could not be prouder that you were pushing that in that episode so hard. And now it's I mean, this is pure vindication that you're. Instinct was correct, definitely in that situation. So we will keep you updated as we learn more. If there are more updates about the Madeline McCann case, obviously that is a case that has gripped the entire world for so long. And it would be very, very nice to be able to get some sort of justice um, for Madeline McCann and for that family. Because if this is true and, and, you know, um, those parents have been through a lot and I will, I will own that I I had suspicions about them too, and that but I also think that that is a lot about the narrative that was portrayed mm-hmm. through the media over the years. Um, it would be you know again, and I know that there's also we don't have to get into it again. Listen to the episode if you want to really hear us get into it. But um, I just think that obviously uh, for any case, but uh, that one especially, it would be nice to just have some answers and some justice, um, especially. When it may have just been under that house all this time. Oh, yeah. I have already written the story in my head that whoever's living there now that was like, oh, okay, yeah, check under my house. Heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) I want to believe that someone was listening to it and went, wait, (laughs) but not like Germany, Germany, right? Wait, what did you say his name was? Like, I want to believe they were like, oh, my God. And like immediately pause the episode call the police then back into hear whatever Look, else we if came up i with. know anything <laughs> it's that we do have listeners in the netherlands so shout out to our ne- listeners in the netherlands sure. and the netherlands and germany i believe are quite close oh don't, don't quiz me on that. geography please <laughs> please don't um but my point is is that yeah i mean i want to believe that more than i want most things i want to believe that we could be a part of it obviously uh of course, we're we're being glib and joking. We what we want, of course, is, is the justice. But would it be nice to have been played a hand in it? It would be nice. Oh, it would uh, 
it would be the icing on the cake of the justice. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, there'd be a lot of justice. Um, and then, I mean, oh. that icing, I mean, it would be very sweet. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So stay tuned for more about that. But in the meantime, kudos, because guess what? I never I never doubted that your instincts are correct and that you're on the money. But this is proof right there. It's nice. It's it's just it's nice. There's a vindication to. OK, so finally they're like, OK, she was on to something. Yep. And so who knows? We'll see what they find because they, 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 we'll they, see they what have they to find. go looking. God, I can't imagine that job. I mean, we we I think we need to be prepared to give them some time because I'm sure it's one of those things where because so much time has passed, they probably have to treat it extremely yeah. delicately so that they don't potentially destroy any evidence or, you know, taint any evidence or anything like that. I mean, I, I just I pray that if anything, oh, God. Terrible happened in that location that there is still evidence present that can again, you know, lead to some some sort of justice. That's that is the hope. So um, what you're saying is don't go in with a backhoe as an unexperienced backhoe operator. <laughs> what I'm saying is is that while I would have supported the backhoe, I am glad that perhaps they have people going in with like little toothbrushes or something. Yeah. Like paleontologists. Bring in the Jurassic Park people. Leave out these speed yahoos. <laughs> Look, if we needed to bulldoze a house to get something done, oh, we're your gals. I almost feel like that could be fun. I've, I, listen, you've communicated wanting to go to one of those break it rooms <laughs> where you yeah, like get a bat and you get to break things. Yeah. We'll, we'll make that happen. So, yeah, put it on the list. Put it on the list. Now, I got to ask you, what you drinking over there? You referenced <laughs> multiple boozes. Uh, I, we had some Arbor Mist the other night. And didn't quite finish it. And so I'm like, I'll just finish it. There's enough for a glass. It'll be great. Enough for a glass. It's like barely a glass. It's like a chop. It's like a <laughs> sippy cup at this point. Um, so I'm like, oh, I can't just do that. Um, so I'm going to chase it with a with a pombe. <laughs> so I don't know how that's going to go. We'll see. Well, we'll see. Good luck. <laughs> good luck to you. Good luck to now, all of us. I and I I could not be more excited. Now it should be noted that I have not drank in almost two weeks. Okay, two weeks to it would thirteen days is what I have gone. Um, now the reason being is I had a photo shoot last week and I don't normally get into. I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna take a little booze break because I feel like my face has been just a little bit puffy. Um, which is fine. Um, uh, but I was also like, it's probably not the worst to just take a, just chill out for a little bit. Sure. Uh, but guess what? I thought, what better way to come back into the world we both know and love than here with my best gal, with all of our friends listening, uh, with a peach high noon. Oh. It just felt right. That's nice. Now, for those watching, I know what you're looking at, which is these beautiful nails of mine. <laughs> now, this is also the latest update for me here is because I was doing this photo shoot, I decided to go all out and get acrylic nails done for the first time in my life. And I want you all to know that I love the look of them. Yeah. I was worried that my fingers were going to look like hot dogs with a press on on each one. But actually, I feel like they've <laughs> elongated my hands. Oh, um, yeah. There's an elegance there. Right. 
I've been taking pictures of my hands, like holding a can of Diet Coke. Like I, I'm obsessed with my own hands. But what I'll say is, is it's been a learning curve in trying to learn how to open doors, use a key, <laughs> go to the bathroom, all of these things. Sure. So it's been a real week of discovery. How to type on a computer. That's another one. Um, but I want you to know that I'm starting to get the hang of it. And I feel like I could take over the world. See, <laughs> there it is. I like right? the confidence that it brought in. Because yeah. those are the nails you're going to have to have when you're head of the crime family. <laughs> Thank you very much. Which I know that you're going to bring us into, of course, when you when you marry a mobster or, uh, you know. Yeah. And he's going to mysteriously yeah. go missing. <laughs> <laughs> but... Only after his people have realized that they're willing to follow me because I give them a little extra and I treat them nicer and all the things I do behind his back so that when the day comes that things need to happen and I start just the, the, the little whisper of like, it's too bad other people didn't run this show. And then they're like, oh, yeah. Can we work for abroad? I don't know. I don't know where. I don't know where, I, I don't know where I'm moving to. Look, I. I, I 1935, apparently. Hey, yo. Um, I also love that when it first got brought up that you thought you could be a mobster's wife because you're like good at keeping secrets and stuff. Now it is, it is very wildly swung to. That's not the reason why. It's because you. You just want to use it to eventually uh, take over his business, which I really am responding to. And that, my friend, is season three energy. You know what I'm saying? Oh. That's it right there. There's a usurp situation going to happen. I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to. I love that I've also gone into this. Oh, now I hope there aren't any hot mobsters listening. Um <laughs> Now that I've admitted my plan, I'm like a villain in a Disney movie where I'm like, let me tell you my plan so you can figure out how to foil it early. Any hot mobsters? Calm down. I I don't know. I don't know what today is. <laughs> today is a whole new type of energy that I I just don't have words for. Season three, no rules. No rules, baby. <laughs> no rules, but you also said we were respectful and saying, I'm going to marry him to get rid of him. Like, <laughs> that felt, Look, I, you know. I want to remind you, I, I said no rules, no boundaries, and then immediately crossed out no boundaries because I was like, well, we have boundaries, but, you know, there's no rules. But there is. But we're not going to, uh, you know. Here's the thing. It's we're like the two nerdiest. Like when we say no rules, it's like, yeah, but we mean like. Except mean for the like regular my, rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No rules. Like, ooh, you could eat ice cream for dinner. But like, uh, like, no, we're still going to pay our taxes and be good people. Of course. Of course. <laughs> if you think the second I get some power, I'm going to Al Capone this shit. No. No. Taxes are going to be done properly. Yes. People are going to get paid a little higher than they yeah. normally do. I'm basically, I'm, I'm essentially talking about raising the minimum wage in the mob. <laughs> so... <laughs>
Well, oh, no. bless your heart and your wallet. Um, on that note, I think we should get right into it because this is an episode that we have had requested from the very beginning of this show. It has been up there. Again, I think our number one most requested was Jean Bonnet. Oh, I think yeah. our number our number two most requested was Madeline McCann. And I think our number three most quest- requested was this one, which of course is The Black Dahlia. Um, yeah. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know a lot about this case. My only frame of reference about it is the Josh Hartnett movie, which I'll be honest, was a weird watch. <laughs> So I'm very excited mm-hmm. for you to uh, school me, to educate me. Oh, there's there's a lot that I I knew basic things. And then like a day into research, I did like an, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> like a really like, ooh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So So this one does take some turns. Downward <laughs> for, what for what we're for what we've been dealing with recently. Anyway, not that everything we deal with recently is positive, uh, but there's still there are we're gonna get we're still gonna get mad at the patriarchy. Oh sure, we're we're I'm sure, sure we're gonna go running for the blankets. Like I'm sure it's gonna be business as usual with just like a little extra like okay skip ahead skip ahead skip ahead and we're back (laughs) you know just a little bit listen yeah i mean that's the that's the special sauce the true creme and cocktail special sauce and speaking of blankets uh at the time of this airing tomorrow september 1st go to truecrewmerch.com where you can get your uh, very own true creme and cocktails blanket get the blankets there's also get the blankets merch Wrap yourself up, throw that thing in the dryer, bundle yourself up, give yourself a nice warm hug from us. I could not be more excited that you know when this episode comes out because, nope, I, if you'd, I was immediately doing some very quick math. I was like, is it? Wait, it's not July. Like that's... (laughs) (laughs) Look, Uh, this is because together you and I make one brain. (laughs) It is. It's. It's an honor. <laughs> well, an honor. it is an honor. And when when I when I fall down, you pick me up, which sounds like the beginning of maybe some sort of motivational song. Oh, it's. There's going to be some sort of. I mean, if my my gut instinct goes to the, of course, Josh Groban. Yes, you know, you if I up, fall, you raise me up, or however. Yeah, you know, I love that. I just used his lyrics. And incorporated yours very quickly. God, That's the weird is this you. rush? This is the rush that Weird Al feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, do yeah, you think must he be. genuinely gets a rush where he's like, "Beat it, beat, <laughs> seat, meat, eat, eat, eat it." Like, and then he's like losing his mind. <sighs> I, you know what? I hope that we can somehow talk to Weird Al so we can ask him about his process because I'd like to know if he gets a rush as well. I like no pressure, um, Mr. Al. I know it's Mr. Yankovic. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, but I, I would love to witness the process. 
What I like is that this feels like a callback to you addressing Mr. Frakes in, <laughs> in regards to Jonathan Frakes. Yeah. I feel like this yeah. is the same energy, which I'm here for. Yeah. I'm here for. I mean, the thing with, with that is, you know, and that's, I don't know if it's because of how long it's been since then, or if it's this new mob energy I've got going on. But now, like, I couldn't speak to him. And he wasn't even here anywhere. But now I'm going to say, Frakes. Call me. <laughs> oh wow! She she oh. had to walk before she could run. <laughs> she she did, and she had to blush before she could flush. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this also oh. proves what kind of mob boss I'd be, where I would be like try and be badass, and then I'd be like, "Was that okay? Was that yeah. good? How was that? You know." Instead of just like, get it done. Is it is that okay? I like the idea of you having like peer reviews. <laughs> like you have employee reviews once a year where you're like, hey, how's it going? Do you want a mint? Okay, <laughs> let's go through your file. <laughs> You've done yeah. four hits this year. That's good. That's on quota. That's good. <laughs> oh, if, if you think four a year is on quota. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I forgot. You're tough. You're tough. I forgot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because the oh. first thing the dear listeners think of when they think of tough is this broad right here. <laughs> oh, I've... I give it another year. You know what I'm saying? We haven't even hit a year mark of doing this podcast and you're already calling, telling Jonathan Frakes to call you. So, <laughs> Oh, but I, don't I, really because I'll freak out. Yeah, no, I know. Again, again, we say no rules, but we mean rules. Yeah. Um... Listen, the Black Dahlia, let's get into it. Elizabeth Short moved to California with dreams of becoming a famous actress. And while she never achieved fame during her lifetime, Elizabeth is now known worldwide by the nickname The Black Dahlia, a name given to her after she was found brutally murdered in Los Angeles with her body surgically cut in half. Despite police receiving hundreds of confessions and questioning more than a hundred suspects, the Black Dahlia murder remains unsolved 75 years later. So what happened to Elizabeth Short? Was it the work of a psychopathic doctor? Was her murderer taking out his frustration over being rejected by her? Or did Elizabeth unknowingly learn too much about a Hollywood madam and the mob? Well, that connects. I think that's where the energy's coming from, because if I gotcha. read enough into the mob, then I'm just like, oh, then I'm just taking a course on what to do. <laughs> <laughs> of course. What an insane person I have become. I know. I don't know if it's the hour. I don't know if it's the day. I don't know if it's just uh, buckle up because this is who you are now. I <laughs> could be any of these things like a season turn 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 you know what i mean <laughs> oh i don't know what that means my but god who sang that the mamas and the papas i believe holy fuck i'm not even kidding i reference them later shut up i do synergy synergy yeah okay this is already getting creepy yeah all right i'm gonna say right off the top the older the case, the more difficult it is to find and verify certain information. Most of the people involved in this case have long since passed. So a lot of the stories are being told secondhand, which can lead to misinformation. 
And with a case as well known as this, there is a lot of information out there, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate. For example, uh, I read a book about the case by a man who spent years working on it. He refers to a woman as Betsy, but literally everywhere else calls her Betty. So it's a tiny, tiny error, but you know, it's like a, it's like a game, a telephone when you were a kid right. where you tell like a long line of kids and by the time you get to the end, it's just kind of a mess. So my point is I'm doing my best to be as accurate as possible, but <laughs> there's a lot of mess here. So we're just <laughs> waiting, we're wading through as best we can. So Elizabeth Ann Short was born July 29th, 1924 in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. She was the middle of five sisters which from oldest to youngest included Virginia, Dorothea, Elizabeth, Elnora, and Muriel. Their father, Cleo Short, built mini golf courses and was relatively wealthy until the 1929 stock market crash, uh, which left him financially devastated overnight. Cleo handled this financial upset by just up and leaving his family. In In 1930... Cleo's car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge near Boston, and Cleo was nowhere to be found. Police concluded that Cleo had committed suicide. Cleo's wife, Phoebe Sawyer, was left to care for the couple's five daughters, who were between the ages of one and ten. She moved the girls to a small apartment in Medford, Massachusetts, and started working as a bookkeeper. Phoebe said that Cleo's absence was particularly hard on Elizabeth and that this moment was the beginning of Elizabeth's emotional problems. Her mother would later describe her as manic depressive. Phoebe said that Elizabeth was, quote, ambitious and beautiful and full of life, but she had her moments of despondency. Sometimes she would be gay and carefree, then in the depths of despair. Along with mental health problems, Elizabeth also suffered from asthma and recurring bronchitis, which led to her undergoing lung surgery at the age of 15 in 1939. Whoa! Doctors then recommended that Elizabeth move to a more hospitable climate, so she went to live with relatives in Florida during the winter months. At some point while in Florida, Elizabeth met Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., who was a major in the U.S. Air Force. I don't know officially when they met or how long they were together, but I do know they wrote letters to each other while he served overseas, but we will get into that more in a moment. In 1942, 12 years after his death, Cleo sent a letter to Phoebe saying he was alive and working in the shipyards in California. He explained he hadn't been able to face up to their financial problems, but he hoped that Phoebe would forgive him and uh, allow him to return to his family. Phoebe said she no longer considered Cleo to be her husband, and that as far as she was concerned, he was still dead. And honestly, good for her. Yeah. Because that is bullshit. Now, was he still alive? He was. Yeah. Wow. He will uh, come up again in our story. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he abandoned the family when times got tough. He left his wife to raise five young kids alone And then also she had to deal with the creditors that he had run out on and all of his debts. Uh, And then to just let them assume you were dead for 12 years? I mean, 
But Elizabeth wasn't so quick to push Cleo away, and she started writing to him. Cleo sent her money, and soon she dropped out of school after her sophomore year and decided to pursue her dream of becoming an actress. Now, accuracy, side note. Most places that I found, both on the internet and in books, mention Elizabeth Short all say she wanted to be an aspiring, she was an aspiring actress. One site that I found, which runs a tour of places in Los Angeles where Elizabeth had visited, claimed that there is no proof whatsoever that she ever wanted to be an actress. Oh. I have read that her mother said Elizabeth always wanted to be an actress, so I'm just running with that. Uh, I guess basically what I'm saying is, to the people who run the tour, don't come for me. <laughs> she, sound, <laughs> she sounds tough when she's all mobster, but... Deep down, she's still blushing over Frakes. That's who she is. Of course. Uh, in December 1942, Elizabeth took a train to California to live with her father in Vallejo, I believe it's called. Uh, however, that didn't last long. And about a month later, in early 1943, Elizabeth moved out. Cleo later said, quote, she wouldn't stay home. In 1943, I told her to go on her own way. I'd go mine. After that, she headed south and worked at Camp Cook, and then she was arrested in Santa Barbara for juvenile delinquency. Which is true. At the time, Elizabeth was working as a clerk at the U.S. Army's Camp Cook near Santa Barbara. While she was there, she won Cutie of the Week, which was a contest they had, which I think we should start for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> we're both going to win every week. <laughs> but we're going to act surprised. Of course. Uh, she was described by her former boss as, quote, one of the loveliest girls I have seen and the most shy. Elizabeth left Camp Cook after allegedly being assaulted by one of the sergeants. Oh, no. I do not know more on that, but I know that there was a problem and she left. Uh, on September 23rd, 1943, Elizabeth was arrested for underage drinking with a group of friends and four servicemen from Camp Cook. During her arrest, Elizabeth was fingerprinted and had her mugshot taken. At the time, she was 19 years old, but the legal drinking age in California was 21. The police decided to release her on probation and take her to a bus station where she returned to Medford to live with her mother. Prohibition side note. Ooh. Because of the prohibition, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution made it illegal to manufacture, transport, or sell intoxicating liquors in 1920. But this was repealed in 1933, followed by each state adopting minimal, minimum legal drinking age policies. And at the time, most of them opted for the age of 21. But between 1970 and 1975, 30 states lowered their drinking age to somewhere between 18 and 20 due to a push to get a lower legal voting age from 21 to 18. So the National Minimum Drinking Age Act of 1984 prompted states to raise the legal age back to 21 or they would risk losing millions of dollars in federal highway funds. By 1988, all 50 states had gone back to 21 as minimum age. In Canada, 10 provinces and territories have the minimum age set at 19, while Alberta, Manitoba, and Quebec are 18. Worldwide, there are 14 countries with their legal age limit at 16, 69 countries are 18, and 96 countries have no legal 
limit minimum age at all. Interesting. So Elizabeth returned to Medford briefly before going to back back to Miami with some friends and then returning once again to California. Her mother, Phoebe, said that Elizabeth wrote to her at least once a week. In August 1945, Matthew Gordon, the young Air Force major that Elizabeth was taken with, was set to return home. However, he was sent on a test flight the night before he was supposed to go home, and the plane crashed near India. In September, not long after the war had ended, Elizabeth allegedly received a telegram from Matthew's mother saying, quote, Matt killed in plane crash on way home from India. Our deepest sympathy is with you. Pray it isn't true. From all I could tell, it was, in fact, true. Matthew was just 26 years old. I couldn't mm -hmm. find out much about him, but I did learn he was born in April 1919, and he was injured in a plane crash in February 1944 while he was attempting to rescue another pilot. He later returned to service and then was killed August 10th, 1945. He was posthumously awarded a Silver Star for gallantry in action against the enemy as a fighter pilot in the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations during World War II. It is said that Matthew's death devastated Elizabeth and that she was never the same after. She returned to Medford that same year, but soon became restless. However, I'm not 100% sure of what their relationship status really was. Some say they were engaged, uh, but we don't know how accurate that was. In a letter that Matthew wrote to his mother, dated May 5th, 1945, she had asked him if he thought Elizabeth loved him, and he said, quote, it kind of looks like she does. In 11 days, she wrote me 27 letters. Whoa. However, it is said that after Elizabeth's death, that among her possessions was a newspaper clipping announcing Matthew's engagement to another woman. <gasps> oh! No word on who the woman was, because the woman's name had been scratched out. So were they engaged or not? I don't know. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So in May 1946, Elizabeth moved to Los Angeles and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub, where she worked as a waitress. Her landlord was the nightclub's owner, Mark Hansen. In 1946, July 1946, Elizabeth allegedly met Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who was stationed at the naval base in Long Beach. Um, August 1946, Elizabeth checked into the Hawthorne Hotel. She had two female roommates, Marjorie Graham and Lynn Martin. The desk clerk said that Elizabeth was always late with the rent, but that a dark-complexioned man would always come in and pay her bill. He drove an old black Ford sedan and parked out front. He appeared to be in his late 30s and was about five foot six with a medium build. Elizabeth checked out on September 28th, loading her bags into the mystery man's car. Elizabeth referred to this man as Maurice, which led some to believe he must have been Maurice Clement, a well-known minion of mobsters Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel. Holy shit. Yeah. Maurice also worked for the talent department at Columbia Studios, setting up liaisons between the studio bigwigs and their friends with girls who worked for Brenda Allen. Which brings us to a sex scandal side note. 
I like that that side note had a bit of a sexy lilt to it. Sex scandal side note. It's, I liked it. Uh, she's she's holding together as best as I like best it. she can. So Brenda Allen, who was born Marie Mitchell, was a notorious Hollywood madam who ran a uh, sex work ring for the syndicate, which is oh. easily one of the coolest things I have ever heard. The syndicate gets less cool because it was run by a group, a small group of men um, mm. who took numerous brothels and sex workers and turned it into a full business, which dominated sex work in the Los Angeles area, as well as gambling and trade in illegal liquor during the Prohibition era. The syndicate had known ties to various politicians and police within the city. Brenda began working as a sex worker in the 1930s and was discovered by Anne Forst, a.k.a. Anne Forrester, a.k.a. The Black Widow. Oh! I know. Mob Boss Christie is going to need a name, like a really cool name. Yeah. Uh, Anne took Brenda under her wing and taught her the business. On April 22nd, 1940, a young woman contacted police to say she had been held captive. When police raided the home, they arrested two men and one woman. Charles Montgomery was the leader of the operation. Bristol Barrett oversaw finding, wooing, and luring the young women. And 33-year-old Anne Forst, a.k.a. Black Widow, was a key figure in booking the girls and placing them in disorderly and ill-reputed homes. Anne promised young women net incomes of three dollars to $400 a month if they would work for her. Evidence indicated that Anne's sex work operation included almost 200 women. After Whoa. Anne's arrest, Brenda stepped up and took her place. Brenda, who was known as Marie Mitchell at the time, changed her name to Brenda Allen and took over the sex work operation. She became known as Madam Brenda Allen, the Queen Bee, or the Vice Queen. Oh, these are great names. That's what I want. Yeah. I want the the privilege of being able to name it so it's really great. And I'm not just like, I don't know. I'll just end up being like fucking cookies or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Cookies plural is kind of amazing, though. Uh, It's already growing on me, unfortunately. I I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Uh, Anne was sentenced to nearly 10 years, but only served about three or four. She moved north after her release and later moved to Nevada, where she ran highway motels with her husband until her death in 1998. But while Brenda was in charge, she tried to take things up a notch, including by dating a Hollywood vice cop named Sergeant Elmer Jackson to gain protection for her operation Elmer soon became her business partner, where Brenda would pay him $50 a week per woman employed. Which is, based on the hundreds of women, decent amount. Yeah. Other vice cops were then brought in, each earning money to protect the group of approximately 114 young women. The women were bringing in about $9,000 a day, which is just over 175000 in today's money. Right. Brenda would take 50% off the top, and then a third of what was left, she would 
give to paying off the cops, doctors, lawyers, bail bondsmen, whatever they need. And the rest would then get divided amongst the women. So while Brenda was making $4,500 a day, the women were each making about 26 bucks. Oh, the clientele was said to be made up of 250 from the entertainment industry, politicians and gangsters. But apparently some of the LAPD were not on the take. They started to get suspicious of Brenda's operation and through a phone tap recording, verify that there were in fact corrupt cops involved in the syndicate. Brenda and her partner, boyfriend, Elmer Jackson, were later arrested and found guilty on charges of attempted pandering after Brenda tried to recruit an undercover policewoman. At the trial, Brenda admitted that uh, about the protection payoffs that she made to the police, specifically to Elmer Jackson, fully threw him under the bus. But in return for her testimony, she was only sentenced to a year in prison. She served eight months and then got five years probation. Mm. Fascinating side note in a side note. February 22nd, 1947, five weeks after Elizabeth's death, Brenda and her partner, Sergeant Jackson, are sitting in a car outside of Brenda's apartment when they were approached by two armed men. Jackson managed to shoot one of the would-be robbers who died instantly, but his accomplice got away. But it turns out it wasn't a robbery at all. It was, in fact, an attempted hit. Oh. The robber was a mafia gunman from Chicago. And they were looking to take out Brenda. Who's they? Interesting. We don't know. It wasn't right. cookies, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, after this, Brenda went into hiding. Some say that Brenda knew the identity of Elizabeth's killer and that they tried to silence her. But I can't say for sure that the two women were ever acquainted. It seems Elizabeth knew Maurice, who worked for Brenda, and we could make some assumptions based on that, but I can't say if it's true or not. But back to Elizabeth. October 1946, Elizabeth's friend, Anne Toth, uh, a Hollywood starlet, brought Elizabeth to meet Anne's boyfriend, 55-year-old Mark Hansen. Mark owned more than a dozen movie theaters and was part owner of the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Apparently, the Florentine was known for putting on burlesque shows as well as for having a secret casino. It is said hmm. that Mark, um, quote, worked in a shadowy hinterland between legitimate business and the fringes of the L.A. underworld. Underworld is... Something that Cookies likes, you know, <laughs> along with a secret casino. I just yeah. said I was going to be good. And then I was like, what's, what's a little skim off the top? <laughs> See, it's a slippery slope. It's, it's a nightmare. Uh, and when my kids are helping count, I'm just going to claim that's math. <laughs> You're teaching them money skills, yeah, exactly. It's life skills. But it should be noted also, you're not going to be involved in sex trafficking. You're not that no, kind of mob boss. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I could do casino, probably. Yeah. Yep. God, gun to my head, I could probably launder money. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing quote. <laughs> well, and we also yeah. know that, like, you would be happy to run, say, 
a, be- a venue um, where perhaps a bunch of male exotic dancers yeah. were to put on shows, um, but you'd treat them right, and they'd be there of their own volition. Of course. And they'd be clean. Right? And they'd be very clean. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No one's going to be there if they don't want to be there. Exactly. And there's going to be rules about no touching. <laughs> <laughs> this became arrested development in prison very like it. quickly. It always does. Uh, so Mark Hansen uh, was apparently also a piece of shit. Uh, okay. Because he was known to bed chorus girls and wannabe actresses, even though he was married. Hmm. Apparently the Florentine had two boarding houses behind it where... Uh, would-be Hollywood hopefuls were groomed for semi-nude careers both on and off the dance floor. At the time, Anne Toth was living in one of these houses, and she brought Elizabeth along as she needed a place to stay. It is said that Mark took a liking to Elizabeth, but Elizabeth, not interested. Mm. Anne Toth said that Elizabeth had an endless stream of boyfriends, but Elizabeth made them pick her up or drop her off, a block away from the house because Mark was incredibly jealous and wouldn't have allowed it. On the night of December 6, 1946, Elizabeth suddenly moved out of the house. Anne and Mark later said that Elizabeth seemed worried or afraid. Elizabeth left Los Angeles and headed to San Diego, where she roomed with the French family. On December 9, 1946, a 21-year-old named Dorothy French was working as a cashier at the Aztec movie theater. While preparing to close for the night, Dorothy noticed Elizabeth sleeping in one of the front rows. Elizabeth apologized and said she was broke and she had just arrived on the bus from Hollywood. She then asked about a job. Dorothy felt so bad for her that she offered to let Elizabeth come home with her. Home was the small house that Dorothy shared with her 12-year-old brother Corey and their mother Elvira French. Elvira's husband had been killed in the war, and Elizabeth told them that she was also a war widow as her husband, Major Matthew Gordon, had been killed in a plane crash in India. Oh, boy. Elizabeth allegedly pulled out newspaper clippings to show the family while she talked about Matthew. Elizabeth also told the Frenches that they had an infant son together, but that her son had died, um, and that she'd been in Hollywood working as an extra. On January 6, 1947, the Frenches claimed that three strangers, specifically two men and a woman, knocked on their door. Elizabeth became agitated and refused to answer the door. Their visit made Elizabeth anxious to leave San Diego. So anxious, in fact, that Elizabeth called Mark Hansen on January 8th, hoping that he could help her leave town. But when he was unable to help, Elizabeth turned to an acquaintance who had just arrived in town. Elizabeth asked if he could take her to Los Angeles, and he said he wouldn't be able to leave until the morning of January 9th. But Elizabeth packed her bags and left the French's home on the evening of January 8th. And who was this acquaintance? Well, he was a man by the name of Robert Red Manley, a traveling hardware salesman uh, who, during a recent trip to San Diego, noticed Elizabeth while she was standing on a sidewalk. He was so taken with her beauty that he immediately pulled over to talk to her. Red stated, quote, 
A week or 10 days before Christmas, company sent me to San Diego on business. I drove into downtown, hit all my sales spots, and arrived around 5 p.m. Noticed Elizabeth on a street corner, tried to pick her up. Elizabeth was, of course, a beautiful girl. A lot of people commented her only flaw seemed to be a problem with her teeth that she couldn't afford to fix. So her temporary solution was to hide the problem with melted paraffin wax, which sounds awful <laughs> to deal with. Yeah. Um, I feel bad that she felt like she had to do that. Uh, so yeah. this red character, what's his deal? Well, you know, just the usual. He's young. He's handsome. His wife recently had his baby. Uh, That's right. This asshat had been married a whole 15 months and had just become a father. And yet, while on a business trip selling pipe clamps, he's cheating on his wife. And his wife, Harriet, said about her husband, quote, Oh, he couldn't have done anything wrong. Oh, Harriet. Oh, Harriet. Red stated, quote, My wife and I just had a baby, and we had to go through sort of an adjustment period. We had lots to iron out. It was nothing important, but just lots of little things. I decided to pick up Miss Short to make a real test for myself and see if I loved my wife or not. After you've had a baby with her? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a prince. Yep. Red claims he picked up Elizabeth, took her to the Hacienda Club, and then drove her home. He said all they did was kiss a few times. He also claimed that he only saw her December 16th. But according to the French family, Red picked up Elizabeth every night from the 16th to the 21st. But apparently Red wasn't the only one in the relationship to be lying, because Red claims Elizabeth told him she worked for Western Airlines. She did hmm. not. Uh, mm -hmm. So these strangers arrive at the house. Elizabeth gets freaked out and wants the heck out of Dodge. And as luck would have it, Red arrived back in town and offered to take Elizabeth to Los Angeles. But he said he couldn't leave till the morning of the 9th. So the evening of the 8th, Elizabeth loads her bags into Red's car. They drive along the Pacific Coast Highway and stop at the Mecca Motel, which was about 12 miles or 19 kilometers north of Pacific Beach. They both signed the motel register with their full name, which probably isn't the way to go about it yeah. when there's an affair. Allegedly. Yeah, usually but, not. Uh, yeah. In a letter dated January 2nd, Elizabeth had written to her friend Anne Toth asking for money and said she promised to get Elizabeth a role in the burlesque review at the Florentine Gardens. And then a letter dated January 8th, Elizabeth told her mother that she had been promised a role in the Florentine Gardens review and that a man named Red would be driving her to Los Angeles. On January 9th, Elizabeth arrived in Los Angeles, Red claims that Elizabeth checked some bags at the Greyhound station, and then he took her to the Biltmore Hotel. Which brings me to a spooky side note. Ooh. The Biltmore Hotel opened in 1923 and was built at a cost of more than $9 million, which is more than $137 million today. At the time, it was said to be the largest hotel west of Chicago. The lobby featured hand-painted cathedral ceilings, crystal chandeliers, and marble floors. 
Between 1935 and 1939, the Biltmore hosted the Academy Awards, and during World War II, it became a rest and relaxation facility for soldiers. Huh. It was used as the fictitious Sedgwick Hotel, which was terrorized by Slimer in the first Ghostbusters movie. Of course. And some believe it is home to actual paranormal activity. There is allegedly a nurse ghost on the second floor, a little girl ghost on the ninth floor, and one person claimed to see a boy with no face on the roof. Some even claim to have seen the ghost of Elizabeth Short on the 10th and 11th floors, as well as in the lobby. And if you think I hadn't immediately considered, should we get in this hotel sometime and browse for ghosts? I don't think I can Well, fun fact on a side note. Yeah. The Biltmore is just a hop, skip, and a jump from the Cecil Hotel. We're going to need to do a hotel tour. We have to force ourselves to stay one night in each of them. Well, I don't think you can even get into the Cecil Hotel anymore. Right, because it's more the, the, whatever that is. It's more like apartments or something now. Well, yeah, but I don't even, I don't even know. We need to look into what the state, the the latest is on that, because the front is, seems to be very kind of like um, chained up the last time I was down there. Yeah. So I don't know whether there are people that are still living on any of those floors or not. There might be. I think that the last we heard there was, but I'm curious about what the latest is on that. But the Biltmore, we need to look into. Because that also feels terrifying. Well, a boozy side note in a side note side note. Yes. The Biltmore Hotel now serves a cocktail named for the moniker that Elizabeth was given after her death. The Black Dahlia includes vodka, black raspberry liqueur, and Kahlua. Oh, I that sounds like it would be gross, but I bet you it's actually delicious. Well, and that's the thing. I guess, well, I guess we know what guess. we're doing. <laughs> guess there's only one way to find out. Yeah. Get on a plane. Yeah. Yeah, well. If I have to do a month quarantine to be able to go look at ghosts, oh, but yeah. we're going to need some sort of equipment where we can it, we can see what's in front of us, but like it shows us stuff that we can't see with the naked eye. Don't worry. Cookies got you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The growth. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm proud. I'm very proud. She's already... I'll fight a ghost for you if I have to. <laughs> there we there we have it. Um, it. We will get into the specific name Black Dahlia uh, shortly. But yes. Red, he takes Elizabeth to the Biltmore. But according to Red, Elizabeth told him she was meeting her sister who was visiting town. When they arrived, he said Elizabeth went to the bathroom and asked for Red to check the front desk to see if her sister had arrived or not. She had not. Red then tried to do the right thing and wait around, but after waiting for a few hours, he grew tired and left around 6.30 p.m. Hmm. It turns out uh, that none of Elizabeth's sisters were visiting, so I don't know why she told him that, but it feels like strong energy of... She needed the ride, 
and wanted him to go away. <laughs> you know, it, it, yes. it was like, I gave you the number. So yeah, call me sometime. Not right now, but like sometime. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's not my number. Um, maybe she was just using him for the ride. I don't know, but he was cheating on his wife. So I don't give a shit if she was using him or not. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where well, I stand on yeah. that. Multiple Biltmore employees recalled seeing Elizabeth in the lobby that evening, and the ladies' room attendant remembered seeing Elizabeth at the mirror with a lit paraffin candle applying the melted wax to her teeth, which again, sounds awful. Yeah. Uh, she was seen making several phone calls and sat in a chair near the bell station before walking out the Olive Street door at approximately 10 p.m. According to the staff, um, she had waited about three and a half hours on her own. The doorman said he saw Elizabeth walking toward 6th Street. She was wearing a black tailored suit and matching suede high heels. She headed south on Olive Street and walked five minutes to the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, where people recalled seeing her stop by as if she were looking for someone. Now, most say that this was the last time Elizabeth was seen alive. However, according to former LAPD officer Steve Hodel, he claims there were 13 witnesses who described either seeing or talking with Elizabeth at some point between January 9th and January 14th. Six of the witnesses allegedly knew her personally. So if these people did in fact see her, then it wouldn't have been, you know, potentially mistaken identity. According to Hodel, these witnesses were found after Elizabeth's death when police circulated a bulletin with Elizabeth's description throughout bars, restaurants, and hotels in downtown Los Angeles. The bulletin read, Wanted information on Elizabeth Short between dates January 9th and 15th, 1947. Inquiry should be made at all hotels, motels, apartment houses, cocktail bars, and lounges, nightclubs to ascertain whereabouts of victim between the dates mentioned. According to the author, the 13 witnesses were found because of this bulletin. And who was the last witness to allegedly see Elizabeth? That would be LAPD officer Merrill McBride. Merrill claims on January 14, 1947, around 3.30 p.m., Elizabeth ran up to her claiming an ex-suitor had just threatened to kill her. The officer calmed Elizabeth down and accompanied her to the Main Street bar where Elizabeth retrieved her purse. By the time they arrived, the ex-suitor was gone. After Elizabeth assured the officer that she was okay, Merrill left. However, she confirms that she saw and spoke with Elizabeth again 30 minutes later when Elizabeth left a different bar accompanied by two men and a woman. Much like Much. two men and a woman came, found her in San Diego. It keeps coming back. <sighs> wow. Wow. I mean, I already have so many questions. So many thoughts, a multitude of feelings. But the first thing we got to do is take a quick break because I'm going to need to get another high noon. I'm going to need to hit the can. So you do the same. Refill your drink, hit the loo, and we'll be right back on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, discussing the Black Dahlia. I am learning so much about this case that I did not know before. Because, again, that Josh Hartnett movie didn't really get into anything about Elizabeth (laughs) whatsoever, which is a shame. But anyway, I also want people to know that on the break, I did a very quick Google. um, Because, of course, we were talking about the Cecil Hotel. And I was like, I need to answer the question that we just posed. Here's something. Of course, it comes up as the stay on Maine. And right. you c- it says, like, check in, check out. Like, you can put that in here. But then it says, contact this property for rates and availability. And then if I click on reviews, the most recent reviews written on Google were from eight months ago. So oh. I'm wondering if perhaps this could have fallen prey during the pandemic I don't know, but sure. Um, again, I was down there recently, uh, not to go there, um, but I did drive by, and it just looked—it looked so chained up. I was like, if people are staying there, or or living there, or whatever, I was like, how do they get in and out? And there could be another door. But anyway, it's uh, fascinating to think about because, judging by that, it sounds like. Maybe people have checked out permanently. That was not necessary <laughs> at all. Not necessary at all. Well, but here we are. always necessary. Here we are. Uh, I'm wondering, like you would think because the uh, documentary that featured it came out earlier this year. So you would think that would have like sent people flooding there. It probably it probably did. See, Sorry, I'm I cracking this can because I was too busy Googling in the break to open my can. And with the nails, it's just it's a challenge. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. But I don't know. I mean, it also has a terrible star rating on there. So, uh, you know, it could. I, I do think it would send a certain uh, ilk of person to stay there. Sure. But it may have also been a cautionary tale for other people because, you know. You're not getting what people, what you would necessarily think you were getting. Sure. And now I guess I'm moving to Los Angeles where I'm going to somehow buy the Cecil and bring it back to its former glory. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't have that kind of money. Well, there's so many things. Also, you saw that documentary and it's not an easy place it's to terrifying. be. Yeah, but listen, no, I want to no, no. support your dreams. So for now, I'll say yes and I'll support you every step of the way. Of course. Of course, because not only are you uh, always supportive, but you know, deep down, give her a day or two and this will be gone out of my brain and I won't think about it. Yeah, again. and I'll just propose maybe a different kind of real estate investment for cookies to get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's going to have to have a secret room downstairs, see? <laughs> see? Oh, gosh, I love it. I'm also going to need some sort of throne-like chair in my office. Ooh. Well, yeah. call Armand Hammer. He may have someone who could hook you up. I just love well, how all, less the, work, all the I old episodes yeah. are coming back. I love this. Feels right. I'm going to want the my throne to be a little different. Yes. No cages. No, no, no sex things no about hooks. it. Um, but just like... High backed, like a crushed navy velvet. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Some sort of like a, oh God, I'd say gold, but I'm more of a silver. I'll work with it. We'll see. I don't know what's happening. Well, listen, before we Good get back God. into it, if you're wondering what we're talking yeah. about, uh, revisit the Army Hammer episode of the show if you haven't already listened to it. Uh, it's a real romp into psychosis. So... <laughs> Where did we leave off? Yeah. We left off, of course, with Elizabeth last being seen with two men and a woman, which, of course, is a huge thing because, as we know, she had been found in San Diego by two men and a woman, which feels very daunting and looming. So what happened next? I know it can't be good. Uh, no, we're we're on on in the world of crests and troughs. The only words I remember from my physics class in high school uh we're we're in a trough. We're in uh, a sure. We're we're going down. Mm -hmm. Uh and then it's going to go up briefly and then just even lower than before. Got so it. So January 15th, 6 days after Elizabeth was dropped off at the Biltmore, Betty Bursinger was headed to a shoe repair shop with her 3-year-old daughter Anne around 10:30 a.m. when they walked past an abandoned lot on West 39th Street and South Norton Avenue. The lot was overgrown with brush and weeds, and but something caught Betty's eye. At first, she thought it was a discarded mannequin, but when she got closer, she realized it wasn't a mannequin at all, but rather the mutilated body of a young woman placed about one foot away from the sidewalk. The woman's body had been cleanly severed at the waist, drained of all her blood, and then posed with her arms above her head and her legs spread open. The lower half of her body was about a foot away from the upper half. Jesus. The victim's eyes were open and her hands were positioned by her head with her elbows bent. Betty grabbed her daughter and ran to the closest house looking for a phone. The police soon arrived on the scene and began taking pictures. But you know what the police didn't do? They didn't secure the scene. Ah. Uh. Reporters arrived soon after and just roamed the scene freely. They littered the crime scene with cigarette butts and burnt flashbulbs. Streets weren't blocked off, uh, which is shocking to me, especially due to the incredibly graphic nature 
of the crime. Yeah. You think the police would want to prevent randos on the street from seeing something so horrific or, you know, just to genuinely be respectful to the victim. Uh, the police did, however, get the victim's fingerprints. And I have to admit, um, the press actually helped them with that. The L.A. examiner made a deal with the LAPD. They would transmit the victim's fingerprints through a primitive fax machine system known as Sound Photo in exchange for the exclusive press rights to the identification of the victim. Huh. The LAPD agreed, and soon the prints were matched in the system twice. Once for when the victim applied to work in the commissary, uh, Com sorry, commissary, there she goes, of a U.S. Army base, and once for her arrest in 1943 for underage drinking. So soon after discovering the body, police were able to identify the victim as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. Now, prepare to be outraged. Uh, since reporters were just roaming the scene, they found out the name of the victim, of course. And the L.A. Examiner editor, James Richardson, realized that this story was going to be huge. But what they didn't know was anything about the victim. And who knows a kid better than their own mother? So this piece of shit editor, I went there, had a reporter named Wayne Sutton call Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, and tell her Elizabeth had won a beauty contest in an attempt to gain some much-needed background information for their story. Oh, God. Of course, Phoebe, proud mother, excitedly told the reporter that Elizabeth had won several beauty contests in the past and that she was an overall beautiful and charming girl. She told the reporter that the most recent letter she received from her daughter stated she was heading to Los Angeles with a man named Red. And once the assholes decided that they had enough info for their story, then they promptly told Phoebe that, oh, yeah, by the way, your daughter's actually dead. That's disgusting. Yeah. So the reporter who made the official call claims it was the editor's plan and that he didn't want to go along with it. And while I get that bosses can sometimes make employees do things they don't want to do, this was particularly low, so I don't feel bad for calling wayne an asshole as well no uh and while i'm calling people assholes uh i may as well mention elizabeth's father cleo again uh when he was contacted by police cleo said quote i want nothing to do with this so at least he was consistent about being a shitty dad yeah cleo also told police quote I broke off with the mother and the family several years ago. My wife wanted it that way. When I left the family, I provided a trust fund for their support. A trust fund? There was no trust fund. All Cleo left his family was a lot of debt, a bankrupted business, and some angry creditors. And to top it all off, he let them believe he was dead for more than a decade. And then in the very last moment that he could have been helpful to his family, he chose not to be. Because when police asked if Cleo would identify his daughter's body, he refused. Once again, putting all the bullshit onto Phoebe. And to Phoebe, I say, you deserved better. Yes. Hashtag justice that, for Phoebe. Oh, yeah. I know Phoebe's not going to hear this, but. You know. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth uh, was known as Beth to her family and Betty to her friends. 
And when Elizabeth's death first hit the news, the media referred to the case as the werewolf murder due to how the body was mutilated. But the newspapers soon started referring to Elizabeth Short as the Black Dahlia. Frustratingly uncertain side note. Now, you know, I hate to be uncertain. It is something I should be working through with a therapist, but I'm not. But the origin behind the Black Dahlia is all over the place. I've seen some claim the media came up with it um, because of Elizabeth's black hair and that she wore flowers and dressed in black clothing. And I've seen some claim the media chose it as a nod to a popular movie at the time called The Blue Dahlia and the fact that Elizabeth had dark hair. But I've also seen some claim that Elizabeth was called the Black Dahlia by those who knew her before her death. So whether it was a creation of the media or a friendly nickname, I don't know. And was it based on her hair color or the FBI's belief that Elizabeth wore a lot of black clothing? I don't know that either. What I do know is the first reference to the nickname appeared just two days after the body was first discovered. And speaking of the body... We are going to get into those details. Seasoned police detectives on the scene described it as, quote, one of the city's most brutal killings. So with that in mind, dear listeners, please take this as your trigger warning. Yes. As the details are particularly graphic. And some may say, if it's too awful, then just don't say it, Christy. But I think the details, as awful as they are, are important when trying to understand who the killer is. If we want to properly speculate on who the killer may have been, then we need to know exactly what the monster was capable of. So if you don't want the graphic details, just skip ahead a little bit. (laughs) Uh, When it was found, Elizabeth's body had been displayed. It was carefully severed at the waist, drained of blood, bathed and positioned with the lower half a foot away from the upper half. The body had been carefully scrubbed clean, so there was little physical evidence to be found. A couple of the bristles from what they believed to be a scrub brush were found on the victim. There were rope burns on her ankles, wrists, and throat. Police immediately suspected the killer to be someone with medical training because the bisection was so precise it was described as meticulous, neat, and surgical. And while the cuts to the middle of the torso were clean and precise, there were also several jagged knife wounds found on the body, including deep lacerations on her arms, left thigh, and right breast. There was a four-inch incision in the lower abdomen and a square piece of flesh removed from the left thigh above the knee. It turns out that Elizabeth had a rose tattoo on her leg, so it's been suggested that maybe they removed that in order to further hide her identity, because, of course, the killer would not have known her prints would be found and she could be so easily identified. Oh, I don't like this part. Oh. Both corners of her mouth had been cut three inches to her earlobes. This type of injury is known as the Glasgow Smile, as the practice is believed to have originated in Glasgow, Scotland in the 1920s and 30s. 
The body had severe bruises to the face and right side of the forehead, as well as bruising to the arms and signs of a possible strangulation. Some online have claimed that various letters were carved into the body in different spots. But I, I, I went and found the autopsy photos so that I could tell you uh, those claims have appear to be unfounded. <laughs> okay. So don't go looking for them. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, police believe the body may have been soaked in water and that Elizabeth was likely hung upside down prior to her death. The grass underneath the body was still wet, and based on the temperature overnight, it is believed the body was placed there between 2 and 6 a.m. Police believe that Elizabeth had been killed somewhere else and then placed at the vacant lot as there was very little blood found at the scene. There was, however, a watery blood stain found on the sidewalk, a bloody men's shoe print near the body, but the scene wasn't locked down, so the footprint kind of meant nothing. Ugh. An empty cement sack was found nearby with watery blood stains. It is believed the lower half of the body was carried in the sack, and the contours of the sack indicate it may have been carried by more than one person. Interesting. An autopsy was performed January 16th at 10.30 a.m. The official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to the concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. And if the details weren't awful enough to hear, the worst part to me is she was alive at the time of her head and facial wounds. Uh, the coroner said the excruciating pain would have caused her to go into shock. Oh, God. The coroner also believes that Elizabeth was struck repeatedly with an iron instrument with a blunt edge. The coroner suggested that Elizabeth may have been killed and mutilated while tied in a bathtub. And based on the injuries, the coroner has stated that while Elizabeth was alive during her head and facial injuries, the rest of the injuries all occurred post-mortem. Now, usually an autopsy is part of public record, but in this case... The autopsy was never made public. Police claimed that it was because the report contained information that was only known to the killer. Author Steve Hodel made a request to see the autopsy in 2003, and the L.A. coroner's office said, quote, the Elizabeth Short autopsy report has been lost. <gasps> no! And what could it have said that they didn't want to get out? I've heard a lot of rumors, but since no one living has seen that report, um, we're never going to know. But what I can say is there were no signs of rape and no signs of pregnancy. Interesting. Those two things I can say for sure. Ordinarily, in a homicide case, a full copy of the autopsy report is presented to a jury at an inquest. It is read and elaborated on by the coroner while they're on the witness stand. But in this case... The jury wasn't given a copy of the report, and when the coroner started to read the report, he was told to stop. He read up to a point where he was about to discuss the organs that had been removed by the killer when the judge told him, quote, I don't believe it will be necessary for you to read all of this. Of course, the doctor, had they been allowed to continue, uh, the contents of the autopsy would have been listed in the court transcripts. So it almost feels like the judge or police or someone with power was purposely making it so the report would never be heard. 
And that just feels like somebody covering for somebody else. Yeah, it does. But before I get too far into potential suspects, we're going to look at some at the information that police had at the time. I already mentioned the body appeared to have been scrubbed clean, so there was no physical evidence. There was, however, a man's watch found at the scene in the weeds near the body. It was a 17-jewel Croton military watch with a leather-bound steel snap band. The watch was not weathered in any way, leading police to believe it may have been left by the killer. Robert Hyman, owner of a cafe about two miles or three kilometers away from where the body was found, reported that someone had put a relatively new pair of high heel shoes and a large handbag in an incinerator behind his cafe. Police were able to recover the purse and shoes. However, the items had been wiped clean with gasoline. Will gasoline wipe something clean? I, this was news to me. Huh. Oh, uh, well, shit, now I want to try it. <laughs> I don't want to handle would, gas. <laughs> neither do I. The gas would get everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, frustratingly, I also read that a pair of heels and a handbag were found at the dump. But I can't tell if that was supposed to be the same pair and stuff that were found at the cafe. The misinformation on this case is maddening yeah. at best. But I know for sure at least one pair of heels and a purse were found. The LAPD took the items and kind of mixed them up with 20 other handbags and pairs of shoes. They brought good old Red back in uh, to try and identify items that may have belonged to Elizabeth. Red picked out the very shoes and handbag that had been found by police. He said they were the items Elizabeth had with her when they drove to Los Angeles. He remembered the shoes as they had double heel caps, and she asked him to take her to a shoe repair store to get the caps put on. And the purse was the very one she had in the lobby of the Biltmore. And while it was empty, the inside of it, he said, still smelled of her perfume. Oh, boy. Which is also intense if it was also covered in gas. Again, I'm very confused. Oh, that's a good point, too. Yeah. Uh, and Red also pointed out to police that Elizabeth had checked some bags at the Greyhound station when they first arrived in Los Angeles. So they retrieved the bags from the station, but never made the contents public. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. The French family, who took Elizabeth in a month before her death, said that Elizabeth had told them one of her trunks had been lost in transit while she was traveling between Chicago and Los Angeles in July 1946, and the trunk contained memory books. So reporters searched railway express offices, freight depots, train and bus stations, and eventually found the trunk in the storeroom of a railway express agency in downtown Los Angeles. And sure enough, in the trunk, there were the memory books that Elizabeth had mentioned, which contained dozens of photos of Elizabeth posing on her own and with various servicemen. It also included love letters to Matthew Gordon, wrapped in a red ribbon, and a letter to her mother claiming she was engaged to Matthew Gordon, and that they planned to marry when he returned from overseas. However, it also contained other letters to at least two other soldiers where she was suggesting they get married. Interesting. So, yeah. 
Uh, along with the trunk was another handbag that had a newspaper clipping announcing the engagement of Matthew Gordon and a woman whose name had been scratched out. More than 400 investigators were assigned to the case. They questioned known sex offenders, canvassed the neighborhood, searched storm drains, everything they could think of. And by doing that, they found two potential witnesses. A boy in his early teens named Bobby Jones was delivering newspapers on his route along Crenshaw Boulevard when he saw a black sedan parked along the sidewalk. He said it was parked, and he assumed that based on the hour, it was probably just a couple, quote, necking. Those were Bobby's words, not mine. I hate that so much. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So he kind of just ignored it and went along uh, about his day. Bobby claims that this was around 4 a.m. And when police canvassed the area, they found a neighbor named Robert Meyer who corroborated Bobby's story. The neighbor who lives near the vacant lot said they noticed a 1936 or 37 black Ford sedan that stopped by the curb, stayed for about three or four minutes, and then left. And while the details are very similar to what the paper boy said, the neighbor claims it happened closer to 6.30. Is it possible that one of them was wrong on the time? Is it possible that the car was there twice? Remember, a watch was found at the scene. Is it possible the killer got home and was like, what time is it? Oh, shit. And like went back trying to find it and couldn't because it was too dark. Sunrise that day was 6.53 a.m., So maybe they were concerned about being seen in daylight and didn't want to go back any later. Or maybe one of the two witnesses simply got the time wrong and they saw the same thing at the same time. Due to the weeds and brush at the vacant lot, the neighbor couldn't see the body from his vantage point, so he wasn't aware that anything untoward had even occurred. And of course, the whole time that the police are investigating, the story of Elizabeth's death is making the rounds in the media. It's front page news across the country. And just days later, on January 21st, James Richardson, that asshole editor from the L.A. Examiner, received a phone call from a man claiming to be Elizabeth's killer. The man congratulated the newspaper for its work on the Black Dahlia case, but suggested that it may have run out of material. The killer claimed he wanted to offer his assistance by turning himself in, but he wanted the police to keep chasing him. Then he said, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Shortly after, a letter was sent to the LAPD with words and letters cut out from a newspaper. It said, quote, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. Enclosed was Elizabeth's birth certificate, social security card, some photographs, and an address book embossed with the name Mark Hansen. Oh. And Mark Hansen, who you may or may not remember from the Florentine Gardens, he claimed that the address book wasn't his. It just happened to have his name embossed on the cover in gold. What? Yep. Yep. Uh, then January 23rd, Another letter arrived that said, quote, I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. 
Three more letters arrived from a person who identified themselves as the Black Dahlia Avenger. The first was a handwritten postcard that said, quote, Here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun with police. The next letter had cut out letters that said, quote, Dahlia Killer Cracking wants terms. The final note arrived January 29th, stating, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. So my big thing about these notes, uh, what was the point? Was it just some Yahoo looking for attention? Was it someone involved in the killing trying to mess with police in like a power struggle? Was it someone who worked for the newspaper trying to get something new to keep their story fresh? At one point, the press got Betty Bursinger, the woman who found Elizabeth's body, to recreate her phone call to the police so they could post a photo of her in their paper. And it's just so weird. I mean, first of all, kudos to Betty because she was almost like Grace Kelly. She looked stunning. Uh, But it's literally just a woman modeling, holding a phone like she's on a phone, but not like with that like wistful, like look off. And that's supposed to be like, oh, that's exactly how she looked when she made the phone call. It's like, I doubt it because she had a toddler who was probably like, what's going on? And she was probably super panicked and she just ran. So she wouldn't have looked all put together. But I mean, she looked great. But again, to me, it was like, what are we doing here, paper? Yeah. Uh, But the letters, one thing that caught me immediately about the letters was specifically, I guess, the phone call that was, by the way, letters are coming. They referred to Elizabeth as Beth. And from what I've read, Only her family called her that. Am I suggesting that possibly someone in her family called claiming to be the killer in the hopes of gaining something? Yeah, I am. (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't put anything past her shitty father at this point. And yes, they did send in items that belonged to Elizabeth. But were those items actually with her when she went missing? Or were they in her other luggage? Or were they... At a house she moved around quite a lot. Did she leave them behind somewhere and someone had them? We don't know. It's tough to say. And if this case wasn't crazy enough, there was another murder less than a month later. Around 8 a.m. on February 10th, 1947, a construction worker named H.C. Shelby was on his way to work when he noticed a pile of women's clothing near some weeds not far from the sidewalk. When he got closer to inspect the items, he lifted a coat and uncovered the brutally beaten and naked body of Jean French. No relation to the French family Mm. uh, that I could find. Uh, The coroner believes that the victim had been hit in the head several times with a blunt metal weapon, possibly a socket wrench. The victim was then repeatedly stomped to death. Oh, God. Yeah. The killer used red lipstick to write on the victim's torso, quote, fuck you, PD, and then the name Tex. The media referred to the case as the red lipstick murder. Non-cleverly named side note. <laughs> they can't all be gold, folks. Nope, they can't. Uh, a rumor was spread that the writing sa- actually said, fuck you, BD, not PD, uh, in what people assumed was a comment about the Black Dahlia, most seem to think 
that PD is referring to the police department. Either way, I will say I've seen the photos from the scene, and unless what I have seen has been digitally altered in some way, it looks more like a B to me than the P. I am not an expert. I just play one on a podcast. <laughs> nice. Um, I will post the photo uh, somewhere. It just It's just showing the, the lettering. It doesn't show anything else. Uh, and then you can choose to decide for yourself if it was a, a B or a P. It's just such a weird thing to me. There's a line, that curved line that should not be there if it's not supposed to be a B. Right. Anyhow. So the victim in this case was Jean French, a 45-year-old nurse who had at one point been married to a Texas oil tycoon. Police initially thought the murders were committed by the same person, and I guess it could have been. Uh, but to me, this murder seemed just f- like a full rage crime. But maybe the Black Dahlia was killed by two people and only one of them committed this other murder? It's possible. All I know is that Jean's estranged husband, Frank French, was suspected. He was last seen in the company of a man with a dark complexion, but Frank ended up having an alibi as well as passed a public lie detector test. The man with the dark complexion was never located and, to me, could not sound more made up. (laughs) Yeah. And as far as I know, the victim, again, no relation to the French family that Elizabeth stayed with, Uh, The fact that the writing on the body said the word Tex and her estranged husband was from Texas, I just feel that has to be related somehow. Did he have her killed so he didn't have to pay alimony if they divorced? It's possible. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to start getting into possible suspects, we should try and focus on the suspects in Elizabeth's case because the police had quite a list. So FBI criminal profiler John Douglas believed the killer must have known Elizabeth well and had some emotional attachment to her. He said, quote, the horrific violence inflicted upon the body and leaving the body on public display would indicate that the killer wanted the world to see Elizabeth short and the wrongdoings that he believed she had done to him. Douglas described the killer as a white male in his late 20s or older, With a high school education, he lives alone, works with his hands, and is comfortable with knives and blood, possibly a butcher or a slaughterhouse worker. So let's see who the police had on their list and if they're anything close to that. Yeah. I may get some of these names wrong and if they potentially kill her, I don't fucking care if I said their names wrong. (laughs) Great point. That's that's where Cookies is at. Yep. And she's also going to talk in third person. And she's probably also going to be chewing gum a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She likes a story. Of course. So first up, we have Joseph A. Dumais. I would say Dumais. Great. Uh, Dumais was a 29-year-old corporal who was stationed at Fort Dix in New Jersey. He confessed to the murder a few weeks after it happened. He claims he went on a date with Elizabeth and that after the date... He blacked out and had no memory of what happened to her. However, it came out that Dumais was nowhere near California at the time of the murder, so he was cleared and also had an alibi. So, what you doing, man? Stop wasting time. Stop wasting time. 
Oh, Cookies is going to say that a lot. I feel it. Well, no, because if anybody does waste her time, they don't work for her no more. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I'm also going to need to grow out my hair so that I can, I want to go like 50s, like the beehive for some reason. I want to go like old school. I'm going to have to get the nails. I want the big poofy hair. I need to get the nails. You're going to have to start training your hands soon because it does take about a week to get used to these. <laughs> oh, I, I don't plan on my full takeover in a week. So, well, but it's good to know. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll start the, I'll start the nails after I've gotten everybody's trust because I need to take some time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a whole game that she's going to play. Life's not a game, Christy. Well, if it is, you're playing chess when they're playing checkers. You know what I'm saying? You damn rights I am. <laughs> I don't. don't Your damn rights I am. The plural on rights. I just like that cookies is put nesses in places they're not needed, and uh, I'm here for it. <laughs> cookies is ah oh, crap. I don't know. Oh, she's a crazy bitch. I already. <laughs> I, I already think I'm fond of her. I don't know. I'm in love with her. Just know that. She's a badass bitch. <laughs> she is. She is. Oh, God. I'm going to have Slurpees brought to me left and right because I feel like that will be the one constant throughout all of my personalities is that they like the same things. I look forward to gifting you with a 24 by 36 inch oil <laughs> painting. Of you as cookies with the nails and the beehive. I got to write. Okay. Okay. I'm writing down oil painting. I got to source some artists. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Oh, oh, cookies. The fact that it's plural. Yeah. I don't know why she's adding S's, but that's where we're at. Yep. So another suspect, Walter Bailey. He was a surgeon who lived one block south of the vacant lot where Elizabeth's body was found. And if that isn't weird enough, it turns out that one of Bailey's daughters was friends with Elizabeth's sister, Virginia. So close, in fact, that his daughter was the matron of honor at Virginia's wedding. Four months before the murder, Walter left his wife for another woman who had allegedly blackmailed him because he knew some she knew some sort of secret about him. And when Bailey died in 1948, His wife said that his mistress knew a terrible secret about Bailey, and because of that, he had made her the beneficiary of his will. It is now said that the secret was probably the fact that Bailey performed abortions, which at that point was a crime. But at the time of the murder, Bailey was 67 years old, When he died a year after the crime, his autopsy found he was suffering from a degenerative brain disease. How much that affected him in the last year of his life, I don't know. But I'm just not convinced that whoever did this was an old man. And at the time, I mean, 67 now is different than 67 then. I feel like 67 now, you can still be pretty spry, but 67 back then is, is a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also, after reading it, realized Cookies is going to like blackmail. (laughs) All I'm saying is, is that if she had pluralized that, it would have been a different thing. (laughs) 
Same can be said, but you're, you're right. Wow. Yeah. I really dodged a bullet there. Yeah. I was like, where is this? Woo. Okay. <laughs> but then I went there anyway. So there you go. Where's, where's she putting the S this time? Yeah, oh, exactly. God. I like that it's now C. It's not the right kind, but I've already got you with a little level of fear when cookies is around. I'm, I'm uneasy. I'll be honest. I'll be uneasy <laughs> around her. I'm a little uneasy around her, but I'm, I, you know what? It keeps me on my toes, which I like. <laughs> oh, I'm probably going to start calling you sugar. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know why. And then why. just every once in a while when I'm feeling it, hey, sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, I'm into it. I'm into it. We're going to be our own girl gang. We're losing our minds, and I could Call Lizzo and Taylor Swift and let them know it's time. It's time. I don't remember who else was in that gang. Oh, Beyonce, Rihanna, Taylor Swift. It was a good group. I'd also like to add Mariska Hargitay if I could. Yeah, can we also add Laura Dern? Oh, sure. Because I want to scream her name from the rooftops, and I don't know why. Maybe Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Oh. Listen, I think the point is is that we're pretty open. Oh yeah, we're taking applications. <laughs> yeah. And good good news, much like cutie of the week, everybody <laughs> wins. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. We're picking up what you're putting down. Thank you very much. Um oh boy. All right. So we talked about the old man. I don't believe it was the old man. Um I mean, I guess who knows, but I just he didn't his daughter maybe knew someone who knew Elizabeth, but he did not seem to ever know Elizabeth specifically. Right. So another suspect was a publisher at the Los Angeles Times named Norman Chandler, an author named Donald Wolf, who wrote a book specifically about the Black Dahlia, claims that Elizabeth was one of Brenda Allen's sex workers and that Chandler had gotten her pregnant. Wolf also claims that Chandler used mob connections to have Elizabeth taken out. Now, I have multiple problems with this theory. One, there is no evidence that Brenda Allen and Elizabeth Short ever met. Two, the small portion of the autopsy that is actually available clearly states that Elizabeth was not, in fact, pregnant at the time of her death. And while some may say, oh, the coroner could have lied, sure. But this author was the one who said the woman who found Elizabeth's body was Betsy, Mm. When everywhere else, including the police reports, say Betty. And again, it's a small error. But when it's a book on facts about a murder case, there shouldn't be errors. Is it possible, though, that she was pregnant and that she did meet Walter Bailey to potentially get an abortion? Is that possible? It is possible. I mean... Anything is possible. Sure. I'm just saying, is it, could it be one of those things where there is, there are more people connected to this and, and listen, he may have absolutely nothing to do with, with her death, but he is connected to her sister through his daughter. Is it possible? Anyway, I'm just, I'm noodling as we go. I'm going to say it early and then I'll say it at some point later. I don't know. I've got notes somewhere where I'll say it. I think, um, I don't believe it was just one person. Yeah. I really think it was multiple people that were involved in this. Right. Um, We have not gotten to the people that I think are involved yet. But, you know, who knows? Um, Again, 
police had a lot of suspects. So was this publisher, editor, whatever I said he was, publisher, Norman Chandler, is he potentially the guy? I don't know. He didn't seem like, I don't know. So I'm again, I'm like, I'm listing them off and I'm crossing them off just like cookies would do. Mm-hmm. Um, so Patrick S. O'Reilly, he was a doctor who allegedly met Elizabeth through his friend, nightclub owner Mark Hansen. Police files claim that O'Reilly attended sex parties in Malibu with Mark Hansen. O'Reilly was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for, quote, taking his secretary to a motel and sadistically beating her almost to death for no reason other than to satisfy his sexual desires without intercourse. Okay, okay. So that's that's Patrick, um, which is also incredibly chilling. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, O'Reilly was married to the daughter of an LAPD captain. So if he did do something, he'd have someone who would possibly help him cover it. Did he have anything to do with Elizabeth's murder? I don't know. There is not a lot of information out there about him, just that apparently he's a monster. And then... Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting one for sure. Well, and then we get to some well-known people who were potentially suspected. For example, folk singer Woody Guthrie? Guthrie allegedly sent some sexually explicit letters and tabloid clippings to a woman in Northern California, who Guthrie was allegedly stalking. The woman was so disturbed by the content she received, she showed them to her sister in Los Angeles, who contacted the police. But it turns out that Guthrie was not in Los Angeles at the time, so he was cleared of any involvement. Um, But authorities did try to charge him for sending prohibited material Mm. in the mail i don't know i assume based on solely on the fact of how the body was found and that everyone like no one had really seen anything like that and it really for lack of better words freaked everyone out that they were like oh well this has to be some sort of sexual deviant and so then they're just like okay you send weird stuff in the mail must be you you know i just assume that's why he was on the radar, right. but it just also felt weird to me. Uh, another celebrity that police suspected, filmmaker Orson Welles. Allegedly, Welles was known for his volatile temperament, and just three months before Elizabeth's death, Welles made mannequins that featured lacerations that were allegedly identical to those inflicted on Elizabeth. The mannequins were used in The Lady from Shanghai, a movie that Wells was making with his ex-wife Rita Hayworth. The scenes featuring the mannequins were removed from the film. In one of Elizabeth's last letters to her sister Virginia, Elizabeth claimed that a movie director was going to give her a screen test. Was that director Orson Welles? Or was there even a director at all? I don't know. Um, And I mean... I'm not throwing shade on her for telling white lies because, good God, we've all been, except for the listeners who aren't there yet, 22 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Oh, oh, not even 22 yet. Bless you. My point is, 
I mean, she spent so much time just trying to like live on her own. And I assume that was quite terrifying. And you just tell people what needs to be said to, you know, survive. I get it. Um, so nine days after the murder, Wells left for a 10 month stay in Europe, even though he hadn't finished editing Macbeth which was a film he had both directed and starred in. Despite persistent attempts by the studio to get Wells to return to finish the film, he refused. Some also believe Elizabeth was going out with someone at Columbia Pictures. Was that person Orson Welles? I have not found any proof of them together, but that doesn't mean that they never met. Yeah. And then another well-known suspect, someone who I touched on very briefly earlier... Mobster, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Now, author Don Wolf claims Bugsy was the murderer, but as the boss, I doubt that he did any of the actual killings himself. I'm sure he had underlings who handled all the dirty work. At the time, Bugsy seemed more concerned with the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, so why would he have any desire to brutally kill a woman that had nothing to do with it? I don't know. But apparently, Bugsy had plans to fly to New York to see his wife and children on January 14th, but canceled his trip that morning. On January 15th, the day Elizabeth's body was found, Bugsy made reservations at the Colonial House in Palm Springs, which was, no, which was a known syndicate retreat. Did he know something about Elizabeth's death and went into hiding? It's possible. Although some have suggested that maybe a rival mob mob boss named Jack Dragna killed Elizabeth to frame Bugsy. Mm. Apparently, Bugsy, in some, uh, he kind of pushed in on some of Dragna's business. But if Elizabeth was killed to frame Bugsy, they did a terrible job, as there is nothing about the crime that links to Bugsy at all especially when Jack Dragna's house on Hubert Street was about 250 yards from where Elizabeth's body was found. Mm. Five months after Elizabeth's death, Bugsy Siegel was shot while sitting on his sofa reading the newspaper. It is believed the shooter was standing in the neighbor's driveway at the time. Bugsy was 41 years old. So... I'm also going to say it out loud because maybe then that'll make me do it. I I, I started reading into a bit of Bugsy and I'm like, God, we may, I I may push for a Bugsy Siegel episode at some point because Cookies, Cookies is going to want to hear about her boys. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. I love it. She's out of control. Because, of course, when I think Bugsy Siegel, I'm thinking the movie, so I'm thinking a young Warren Beatty. Yeah, and I, I don't... Is that based it, on him? Oh, it, yeah. It, it's it's. I think it's kind of based on his life, but it can't be based on him visually. Right. So I bet I'm going to get a surprise there. Well, never know. Who knows what Cookie likes? Sorry, Cookies. Sorry, ma'am. Oh, see, even I <laughs> Even I fear her. Yeah. Well, she's got a presence. She's got a presence. You don't mess with her. She has a presence. Well, she needs to keep that so that they both fear and respect her. 
Absolutely. Because it's all about respect. And then she's going to be the kind that will turn a ring around to slap you in the face. (laughs) She has plans. Oh, jeez. She's out of control. So we we're talking suspects. What about suspects that we know had associations with Elizabeth? Like movie theater and nightclub owner Mark Hansen. Yes. Elizabeth briefly lived in one of the boarding houses that Hansen owned. And it is said that at the time of her death, Elizabeth was set to work at the burlesque review at Hansen's Florentine Gardens nightclub. It is said that Mark flirted with Elizabeth and that she rejected him. Hansen's former girlfriend, Anne Toth, even said that Hansen was wildly jealous to the point where Elizabeth wasn't allowed to bring any suitors near the house as Hansen wouldn't have allowed it. Not to mention the address book with his name on it that was sent to police by the Black Dahlia Avenger. However, while it clearly belonged to Hansen originally, he never actually used it and it was clear Elizabeth had been using it herself. Interesting. Uh, Hansen was also connected to multiple doctors, including one of the other suspects, Patrick S. O'Reilly. It's also believed members of the LAPD used to attend some of the elaborate parties that Hansen held at his Hollywood boarding house. So could these officers have helped to cover up Hansen's involvement? Well, in 1949, a 25-year-old named Lola Titus shot Hansen while he was shaving in the bathroom of his home. The bullet pierced one of his lungs and missed his heart by seven-tenths of an inch. Lola said, quote, I made up my mind that he was either going to love me, marry me, or take care of me, or I was going to kill him. Hansen somehow survived the shooting and died of natural causes 15 years later. He was never arrested or charged in any way with Elizabeth's death. But we know there's something shady about Mark Hansen. Yeah. So another suspect that we are all familiar with by now is Robert Red Manley, the man who drove Elizabeth to Los Angeles. Red was 25, married, and a traveling salesman for a hardware company that manufactured pipe clamps. When the police first questioned Red, he claimed he didn't know Elizabeth at all. But they signed the register at a motel together, which is not exactly the smartest move during an affair. Yeah. Uh, So according to Elizabeth's roommates, Red threatened her. Um, Did she possibly threaten to tell his wife? Red had only been married 15 months and his wife had recently given birth, so he probably didn't want Elizabeth rocking that boat. After all, Red admitted himself, quote, I was a little worried about my wife because, you see, we were just married in November 1945 and I'd never stepped out on her before. He's so thoughtful. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Red was publicly arrested and paraded around in front of reporters. And since this was a time before Miranda writes, he was subjected to two polygraph tests and was so brutally interrogated that he allegedly collapsed. He finally admitted to knowing Elizabeth and that he had driven her from San Diego to Los Angeles January 9th, but claimed he hadn't seen or heard from her since. After passing the polygraph tests, he was released 
It is also said that he had an alibi, which I'm wondering if it was his wife, Harriet, because I feel she would have said what she needed to. Uh, Red had previously been discharged from the army for a mental disability, which led him to suffer a series of nervous breakdowns. At one point, Red claimed he was hearing voices. In 1954, his wife Harriet committed him to the Patton State Hospital. He died in 1986 from an accidental fall. So there's a lot of things going on in Red's life that right. we don't really know about. Yeah. Uh, the next suspect is just, and I'm going to say it, He's an odd duck, this guy. Um, Leslie Dillon was a 27-year-old bellhop, former mortician's assistant, and aspiring writer. Two years after Elizabeth's murder, Dillon wrote to LAPD psychiatrist Dr. Paul DeRiver, uh, saying he wanted to discuss the Black Dahlia murder for a book he wanted to write. Or more specifically, he wanted to write a book about his intense interest in sadism and sexual violence. Wow. Which is maybe not the way of putting that. Uh, Dr. DeRiver was interviewed in an article in a pulp crime magazine called True Detective. His hope was to lure out the killer from hiding. He believed the Dahlia killer had, quote, deep-seated compulsion to publicize and claim recognition for the act. And the person who reached out to him was Leslie Dillon, a married man and father living in Florida who had previously lived in California. Dr. DeRiver said that Dillon was a psychopath who, quote, knew more about the Dahlia murder than the police did and more about abnormal sex than most psychiatrists. Whoa. Without prompting... Dylan revealed details of the crime that the police had not publicly released. And after being questioned by police, Dylan implicated his friend Jeff Connors. As the two continued to correspond, Dr. DeRiver started to believe that Connors didn't exist and that it was actually Dylan who had murdered Elizabeth. But police were able to locate Connors, who was actually a man named Artie Lane, who worried uh who worked at Columbia Studios as a maintenance man. Artie was later interviewed and then released. Dylan was booked and presented to reporters at a press conference where he pleaded hysterically for help. Dylan was set to appear in front of a grand jury in 1949, but the case was dismissed when the judge ruled that Dylan had been illegally detained. Some investigators described Dylan as quote the best suspect yet mm. but while the police seemed to really like leslie dillon for the crime a woman named janice knowlton believed she knew who the black dahlia killer was and that was her own father george knowlton was a doctor which fit with the police's original idea of the killer and on police documents there is a suspect named george listed However, I think they met a different George, which I'll get into in a bit because he's terrifying. Um, in 1995, Janice released a book where she discussed why she believed that her father was Elizabeth's killer. Janice claims that she suffered from depression after a hysterectomy and that while in therapy to help with her depression, 
there were some recovered memories that surfaced. Those memories, ah, well, Janice claims that her father was having an affair with Elizabeth and that she was staying in a makeshift bedroom in their garage where Elizabeth suffered a miscarriage. Janice further claims that her father murdered Elizabeth in the garage, bisecting her in the sink, and then forced Janice, who was 10 years old at the time, to help him dispose of the body. Janice went on to say that Elizabeth was a sex worker who procured children for a child trafficking ring. Oh, God. None of this has been proven to be true. In 2004, uh, her stepsister called Janice's memories faulty and her book, quote, trash. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Just like how Janice claims the police told her uh, that her father was not a suspect. Uh, According to police documents, George Knowlton was never considered to be a suspect um, because there's no ties to George and this particular crime. Right. An LAPD officer said, quote, we have a lot of people offering up their fathers and various relatives as the Black Dahlia killer. The thing is, the things that she's saying are not consistent with the facts of the case. Little is known about George Knowlton, except that he lived in Los Angeles in the area in 1947 and that he died in a car accident in 1962. Some family members did come forward in 2009 to say that George was capable of violent abuse and that he boasted about committing several homicides. So was he involved? I don't know. He may have committed other murders. I'm just less likely to believe that he committed this particular murder. Because to me, I just can't get my brain around the idea that a crime scene that had zero physical evidence was partially set up by a 10-year-old? Well, there's also a little bit of a problem about, I mean, I'd need to read more about it, obviously, but, you know, she was last seen downtown. Where was their house that she was living in the garage? We know that she wasn't living in someone's garage around the time of her death. We know she was living in San Diego. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like it 100% adds up. Um, and there's, there's just so many possibilities. Um, it feels when there's, when there's no physical evidence, it just feels, you know, tough to, well, it feels tough to speculate about anybody, obviously, but that one does, if we're basing this all on her repressed memories, repressed memories also, there's a lot of controversy about how accurate that is. Some people swear by it. Other schools of thought are that you can't and that it sometimes, can be very reliable other times it can't now again i am not an expert and i'm not saying one way or the other but that's interesting i mean if it comes to light that this woman was telling the truth i'll eat crow i get it totally uh but for now i just don't believe that she witnessed a brutal brutal murder that particular brutal murder maybe she witnessed another one i don't know i just don't believe they had anything to do with elizabeth um yes. and it's also, also possible it sounds like she definitely went through trauma that sounds like oh, for something. sure so this is not you know um suggesting that that we don't believe that something happened to this woman it just oh, feels no. like it doesn't add up that it would be elizabeth and to your point it could have been 
it could have been another woman, but was it specifically this woman? Again, just yeah. judging by the few facts that we definitely have, it just she she wasn't living in the garage at the time of her death. So unless she somehow got back there, which yeah. is not impossible, but it, again, it just doesn't feel probable. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of concerns um, about some of the memories that Janice claims to have. She claims in 1946 she was sold to a Pasadena satanic sex cult. Uh, she also alleges that she was sexually abused by a long list of now-dead celebrities such as Gene Autry and Walt Disney. So, again, not saying there wasn't trauma because it feels like there was something, but I'm just... It's like, are you putting famous faces to this to help you somehow because you couldn't you can't see their face in your head so you have to give them a face so you can be like right that's who it is in order for you to move on i don't know well and the satanic thing too um quick quick aside but there's obviously <laughs> like the whole satanic panic thing that was going on in the 80s now i know the 80s is a different potentially a different time i'm not sure when she was having her repressed memories kind of um dealt with but um that was a really common theme and that's a whole other episode we could talk about but a lot of the time during that time from the podcasts and documentaries i have uh ingested on that topic it was not the case and that these alleged satanic cults that everyone was so terrified of at the time and convinced existed there was no proof of and all of these people who had all of these memories it's a whole thing is my point so that's also mm -hmm. kind of an interesting detail to add in there where it's like yeah clearly there is trauma happening here but again i don't know whether the details are necessarily um super reliable especially when there is nothing else to there's no other shreds of evidence to back them up or oh, time yeah. frames and that kind of thing we agree it's something, we just don't... Don't know what. Necessarily agree yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Janice was quite vocal on Black Dahlia online forums and insisted that the LAPD were engaged in a conspiracy to discredit her story. Her posts got so verbally abusive that her Usenet account was canceled in 1999 Sadly, Janice died from an overdose of prescription medication mm -hmm. in 2004. Oh, that is too bad. Uh, definitely sounds like there was a lot going on there. Do I think it's possible she was being silenced? I 100% do. Do I think it's possible she was embroiled in something that sounds very terrible? 100% yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, it sounds like that's probably the case. Um, but yeah, for this case. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's this and it could also be she knows it's not this, but maybe there was a part of her that was like, the only way people will listen to what I've gone through is if it's one of these cases that's so huge. Whereas if it was a case no one was paying attention to, they might not listen. That could I be too. Know. Yeah. When Janice was not the only person to suspect their own father of being a killer, former LAPD officer Steve Hodel started to suspect his own father, Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr., after his father's death in 1999. 
Hodel's mother gave him a small photo album that belonged to George. It was about three inches square and contained black and white photographs of numerous women. Two of these photos were a dark-haired woman that Steve didn't recognize. Steve claims he compared the facial contours and counted the freckles and that he is convinced the woman in the photos is Elizabeth Short. Again, I am not an expert, but I just, I don't see it. I see a woman with dark hair, but there's something so weird to look at a picture of a woman with their eyes closed and then look at pictures of a woman with her eyes open and be like, is that the same person? And it seems like, oh, you should be able to tell easy. But there's a lot of things that I'm like, I just don't see what he sees. Again, I will post a photo. I'll maybe see if I can do like a side by side or something. Uh, so the people can yes. decide for themselves. Yeah. Uh, George Hodel was a brilliant eccentric, a musical prodigy, and an academic whiz. He was head of the Los Angeles County Health Department's hygiene division, specializing in venereal disease control, informing the public about the dangers. And it turns out that George Hodel was just fucking gross. <laughs> First... His picture creeps me out. There is something about it. I don't know. Like there's something in his eyes or something where you're like, that dude has done some dark, dark shit. You can feel the energy coming through the photo. It's gross. Secondly, um, and we're going to do just a real quick uh, trigger warning in here mm -hmm. in case anyone needs it. Okay. Uh, in 1949... George's 14-year-old daughter, Tamar, accused him of molesting her. Uh, it went so far that they went to trial, and despite three witnesses that testified to say that they had actually physically seen George having sex with his daughter, somehow he was acquitted two months later. Oh, no. The trial led to the LAPD to include George on their suspect list because he was a physician, but I bet they saw his face and, like me, got a vibe. That's what I'm thinking because this dude is so creepy. So police admitted they put George under surveillance from February 18th to March 27th, 1950, to find out if he could be implicated in Elizabeth's murder his phones were tapped, and some of the transcripts from those recordings still exist. One particular statement that George made, uh, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. Supposing uh, uh, they, could pr they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyhow, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. I don't know. The secretary in question was Ruth Spaulding, who police believe that George murdered in 1945. George was present at the time when Ruth overdosed, and by the time police arrived, George had burnt some of Ruth's papers? The case was dropped due to lack of evidence. Yeah, he burned it. 
Uh, but documents later came to light that indicated Ruth was about to publicly accuse George of intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for lab tests, medical treatment, and prescriptions that they didn't need. Whoa. Steve believes that Elizabeth Short was one of George's patients. I have found nothing to corroborate that, but again, there isn't exactly... There aren't, you can't just click for that doctor's book or appointment book and go through it. So, yeah, yeah. Who knows? So Steve said the killer performed, forgive me, a hemicorporectomy on Elizabeth. He says, quote, it's a unique procedure that was taught at medical school in the 1930s where you cut between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. It's the only way you can divide a body without cutting through bone. That's what happened to her. He said it was taught at the time his father would have been in medical school. At the time of Elizabeth's murder, George was living at the Snowden House, which is a one-of-a-kind mansion built by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright. The house was modeled after a Mayan temple, although some say it looks more like the open mouth of a shark. The house was named after its first owner, John Snowden. The house has made appearances in the movies L.A. Confidential and The Aviator. It was also featured in a as a haunted location in Ghost Hunters and a photo shoot location in season six of America's Next Top Model. So weird. I know. So, so I, I tried to do this because it was alliteration and I got very excited. Snowden, side note. The house was also seen in a 2019 six-episode limited television series, I Am the Night. The show was inspired by a memoir called One Day Shall Darken, The Mysterious Beginnings of Fauna Hodel. And I'm sure you're wondering, who is Fauna Hodel? Well, she was put up for adoption at birth and named Patricia Ann Greenwade. On her birth certificate, her father was listed as unknown, and her mother, well, that would be 16-year-old Tamar Holdel. <gasps> now brace yourself, dear listeners, because this is where this side note gets dark. Patricia, now Fauna, learned about her true origins when she read the transcripts of the 1949 incest trial of George Odell. Tamar told her friend Michelle Phillips, who you may know from the Mamas and the Papas, (laughs) that when Tamar was 11, her father taught her to perform oral sex on him and that he spent years grooming her to be his lover, while also sharing her with wealthy and influential friends. Tamar says that she became pregnant at the age of 14 with her father's child. She said to the greatest horror of the experience was that her father insisted she have his baby. A friend took Tamar to get an abortion, and when George learned what happened, he pistol whipped her. George was arrested and charged with incest and offering his young daughter to several friends at an orgy. It is believed that Tamar got pregnant again, and this time the baby was given up for adoption. 
It was proven that Tamar was Fauna's mother, but I don't know if it was ever proven that George was the father or if they just assumed that it was. The idea that a child accuses their parent of something so horrific and no one thinks to separate them regardless as to the court outcome is beyond disturbing to me. Um, the Snowden house, it should be noted, was located less than 13 miles or 21 kilometers from the vacant lot where Elizabeth's body was found. In November 2012, Steve Hodel allegedly enlisted a cadaver-detecting dog to search for evidence of the Black Dahlia murder at the Snowden house. The dog appeared to detect the scent of human decomposition by a vent near the house's basement, but to date, the house has never been excavated. I think he said at one point he tried to talk with the owners about excavating, and I believe the owner, oh, I thought I'd remember her name. Oh, she was Donna Pinciotti on that 70s show. Oh, Laura Prepon? Yeah, she used to live in the house at the time, and she was like, um, no. And then she has since moved out, and whoever lives there now has also said no. So, hmm. I love that I couldn't remember the actress's name, not even a single, like, beginning, not even a letter, but I remembered her character's full name, mm -hmm. but also just because Pinciati is very, very fun to say. And Cookies knows what Cookies knows. Cookies. She gets it. So was George involved with the Black Dahlia? He was the right level of creep for it. He was wealthy and powerful enough. He could have had ample police or media willing to cover for him. The police felt that the blunt force trauma and jagged cuts to the body are characteristic of a rage murder, while the bisection would have taken advanced surgical knowledge. So is it possible that the murder was committed by more than one person? I personally think so. In the end, police interviewed more than 150 suspects, but no one was ever officially charged with the murder of Elizabeth Short. By 1996, more than 500 people falsely confessed to the crime. We're talking housewives, soldiers, drunk ramblers, pranksters, clergymen, and even a few people who weren't even alive when Elizabeth was murdered. Most just seemed to want notoriety, but all they ended up getting was an obstruction of justice charge. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. Uh, the media frenzy surrounding Elizabeth's death was intense. Her face was featured time and time again on the front pages of newspapers across the country. Police said the case itself took on a life of its own. But the press wasn't always kind to Elizabeth. News reports at the time initially described her as the innocent victim. But as this went on and they couldn't find who the killer was, uh, they started to refer to her as a man-crazy delinquent. Oh, boy. She was called a sex fiend escort. She was called, quote, a lesbian who seduced men for money and lavish gifts before dumping them cold when they expected something in return. Even the police psychiatrist, Dr. Paul DeRiver, said, quote, the averages may have caught up with Beth Short. She may have picked up one many too many. I've said it to Justin Timberlake before, 
And now I'm saying it to you, doctor. You get that girl's name out of your whore mouth. <laughs> because what I don't like is that he called her Beth. Yeah, you don't nobody, know her. Nobody calls her Beth. Her family calls her Beth. Right. Fuck off, Dr. DeRiver. Yeah, she went there. Listen, um, let's take a quick pause. I've got to hit the loo real quick. And then we're going to we're going to finish things up because I've got a lot of opinions and a lot of theories about the fair. Black Dahlia on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Black Dahlia. Um, listen, I <laughs> before the break, you told Dr. DeRiver to keep Elizabeth's name out of his horror mouth, which I could I not did. support more. <laughs> what did. else you got for us? Uh, well, on that same train of thought, uh, the police report said that Elizabeth knew at least 50 men at the time of her death and at least 25 of them had been seen with her in the two months prior to her death. The media said Elizabeth, quote, teased men, got rides with them, places to sleep, clothes and money, but then refused to have sexual intercourse, claiming she was either a virgin, engaged, or married. End quote. I am only going to say this once. No one is obligated to sleep with you no matter what you do for them. Nope. That's how life works. Yep. Especially men of the 1940s. I'm just... <laughs> oh, I don't care how many men she went out with. In fact, I don't care about the majority of the decisions that, and choices that she made in her life. At the end of the day, she was only 22 years old. And not only that... She died in a brutal and oh, horrific way yes. and then was humiliated and left on display. Nothing that she did in her life made her deserve that. No. It just seemed to me that the police and the media needed an answer. They needed something to tell the public. They wanted to make people feel like this was an isolated incident and there was no dear to no need to fear for their own safety. The killer wasn't after them. It was Elizabeth's fault, which is bullshit. And I in no way condone anyone who would even suggest 
that it was her fault in any way. No. But the listeners don't need me to get into how shitty people are towards women. Uh, we know it happens. In this case, uh, specifically, uh, one of Elizabeth's roommates, Lynn Martin, uh, she was questioned by the press. But she didn't live with Elizabeth Long, didn't know her very well, so she didn't have a lot of insight. Um, but the press rev- would interview her time and time again because they like to... Uh, describe her as, quote, shapely and mature-looking. Anytime they mentioned her in an article, oh, did I forget to mention that Lynn was 15 at the time? Stop. So, uh, gross is what I'm going to say. Yep. So, the Black Dahlia case was one of the highest-profile cases in California history, To this day, the FBI and the Los Angeles Police Department both have open case files on the murder. And while it's good to know it's still open, it's tough to think that after all this time, a killer will truly be found. Most of the people involved in the case have since passed. And as with any old case, physical evidence has gone missing over the years and there doesn't seem to be an autopsy report anymore. So it's time once again on this podcast and I haven't done it in a while, so I feel like it's due, that I implore for just 20 minutes alone <laughs> with the police files. Yep. I want to yep. go full Michelle McNamara, Yeah, show up with a cart, load it with boxes, fill a hotel room with case files, close the curtains, and live my best life reading through police information at all hours of the day. And for those who haven't read it, I do highly recommend Michelle McNamara's All Be Gone in the Dark. Um, for <laughs> Something positive, though, I will say about this case. It led to California being the first U.S. state to create a mandatory sex offender registry in 1947. Wow. So I guess that's something. Uh, despite how the media tried to twist Elizabeth's short life... Um, She was just 22 years old. She was practically a kid. Um, She just wanted to settle down with a man who loved her and live in a home of her own. Elizabeth's mother once said that Elizabeth, quote, wanted to be someone famous. She had stars in her eyes and dreams rather than plans. It breaks my heart to think that she got the fame she wanted, but that it didn't happen until after her death. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails. I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow. First of all, amazing work, as always. Not that I ever considered that anything else would even be an option. Um, I do want to say very quickly, you, you yeah. were just talking about going full M- Michelle McNamara and that you were yeah. like, I want to bring a cart, give me all those files or whatever. I and I really thought you were going to say, hunker down in that hotel room with all the quesadillas. I thought that was what you were going to say instead of case files, to which I said, yeah. Case Files and Quesadillas, a true creme and cocktails weekend away? Oh, the second you said quesadillas, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't need the case files anymore. (laughs) I'm going to slop on them. Look, do I have notes (laughs) from a previous record that there's a little bit of barbecue sauce there now? Yes, but that's 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 just love. That's That's just love. 
No, but anyway, that's just something to put in the put in the noodle because I feel like yeah. that's something in our future. Now, I have so many thoughts and I'm going to just get right into them because I know we, you know, we can't, you know, I know people want 24 hour long podcasts, but it, it would kill us. So and then the, then someone <laughs> would have to start a podcast about our deaths. And that's just going to be too much. Um, so yeah. first question I have for you, and I'm just going to dive in. Dr. DeRiver. Yeah. How is it? So what era... Is it possible that he could have been around at the time of Elizabeth's death? Is that possible? Yes. Because because he gave an interview about it within a year or so after it happened in an attempt to lure out whoever did it. And that's when one of the suspects contacted him. So he was there and he's hopefully dead. Isn't it? (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that he was supposed to lure the person out and then all of a sudden the person that happens to come out of nowhere happens to have the most um, advanced sadism fantasies that this doctor has ever heard before Mm. and he just happens to be connected to all of these different things and the case just happens to be dismissed because of course it was handled improperly and then Dr. DeRiver made that slip in which he referred to Elizabeth as Beth which is something that the person who called the newspaper early on said that is a great point Mm mm-hmm I have absolutely nothing else that I can say to back that up, but it just feels to me, that feels to me like, is the person who called the press the killer? Because I think that it is a 50-50. I, there's part of me that's like, it could be, but sure. it also could be something com- somebody completely unrelated who was doing whatever. Do I think Dr. DeRiver did the murder? Possibly. Do I think it's also possible that he may not have, but he may have been involved and could have been the person who was involved in the calls to the press? I do, because it just fe- felt like everything really fell into place for him. With yeah. Where it was like, I'll just lure this person out, and oh, here he is. He came out of nowhere, and oh, he has all of these things that prove it could be him, and it really mm-hmm. feels like he's the suspect. Like It just felt very convenient to me out of nowhere. Um, I did think, however, this friend of Leslie Dillon's, Artie Lane, who was the janitor at Columbia Studios. Now, was Orson Welles working for Columbia Studios at the time? Or we don't know what studios he was working for or the studio he was working for. It was implied that that I think that's where he was working. I thought that that was what I had picked up on. So it's interesting, too, that there is all of these people are connected in so many ways, right? That it's like, Mm -hmm. who... And then I think ultimately it's like if this was a film that I was making, unlike the ones that maybe exist, it's like, of course, the end would be that it's like we're all complacent, right? We're all involved in some way. But anyway, that's more of the the bigger allegory to um, the time and misogyny and patriarchy, all the above. But it's just interesting to me that there is a connection to the studio and therefore is it possible that she said she was connected to a director when in fact it was this person who could have just been a janitor. We know that she was, she did sometimes exaggerate the truth or bend the truth. Sure. Is that possible? Is it also he possible? He also could have told her he was a director. Also possible too. At that point, I don't think you knew who cer- what certain directors looked like. 100%. 
So great point. You never know. Uh, yeah, it's not. Yeah, great point. It's not like we had the internet now where we have IMDb. They didn't have IMDb back then, so it could have been anybody's guess. Then is it also possible that she did meet these people? That she did end up taking a tour of Columbia Studios and somehow did run into Orson Welles, and that he could have been involved? I mean, again, in the grand scheme of anything being possible, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this case which is what you've taught me over the last couple of hours, is because there's so many places where it feels completely plausible. You know, Mark Hansen's involvement, the fact that his book was sent in, and he's like, I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm like, well, he wouldn't have sent his own book in. That would be weird. But wouldn't that be exactly something you would do to make it look like it wasn't you? Like, it seems so, you know, incredibly... um, bizarre that Mark Hansen yeah. would send in Mark Hansen's book, but then he could have thought, well, if I send this in, it's going to look like someone's trying to frame me. So, you know what I mean? Again, like, I just yeah. feel like every time you try and exonerate any, you know, uh, not every witness, but a lot of these witnesses, you start to go, well, no, that doesn't prove anything. Now, I have a big question about, obviously, George Hodel and why were they teaching people how to cut a body in half without going through bone? Is that something that's still taught in medical schools? If you're a doctor or you've been to medical school, could you let us know? Mm -hmm. Do they still teach that? Because that feels like a piece of information that I don't know why you would need to know. You'd never use it. I would hope not. What would be a... There's no reason. Why would you ever need to cut a body in half? It's it's just you would never need to, right? Yeah. That's chilling to me. Like, I, I don't understand why... That would even be taught. But that aside, it definitely does obviously build a huge case against George Hodel. And the details, again, of of obviously what's going on with his daughter and, and mm. that whole story, which is so heartbreaking. The fact that not only did people believe her, people testified on her behalf saying they witnessed it and it still didn't yeah. matter. My God, that poor woman. Um, yeah. It just made me feel, again, like, if you have the knowledge from medical school, we know this is something that's very specific. You have no conscience, based on the fact that we know what had happened between him and his daughter for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, to me, there's a huge case against him. And again, if we're trying to figure out what his connection is to Elizabeth, yes, is it possible he was just, she was just a patient? yes. How does that connect? The the block that I keep running up against is like, what connects her to how she was last seen? Like, what is the person that feels like they could be connected most to how she was last seen? And what that comes back to to me over and over again is that it has to be somebody connected to the mob or some sort of right, some sort of kind of mm-hmm. shady organization. But then I go back to George Hodel and I go, well, if he's having these orgies with all of these people as he has claimed to yeah and we know that they're a pretty you know extreme situation also if if his own daughter had been involved in those orgies god it's hard to talk about um and i won't elaborate further but if we know that he's involved in that kind of extracurricular Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of general terms Does that mean that he could be involved with a certain, you know, mob ties, different groups of people, people that you could send to find her in San Diego, people that you could send to go and get her wherever she is, people that would cover up, that will keep secrets, that would do all this stuff? I mean, I think, yes. Again, like you're dealing with extreme um, depraved acts 
that are uh, horrific at any time, but certainly during this time period, this would be something that is so deeply underground. I know it would be now too, but you know what I'm saying. It's like you would probably yeah. be deeply, deeply in 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 with the mob, or again these um, the police that the crooked cops, which you know is my biggest fear in the world. Um, yeah. It it just felt again like those felt to me like the biggest kind of things that stood out to me. At first, I thought it was this Patrick O'Reilly character when you started getting into his M.O. And it was like, well, that fits. But again, then I ask, in, and didn't he, didn't, it wasn't there also something being said where he knew Patrick? Was it him that he, that he Patrick, knew Patrick and Mark, Mark Excuse Hansen. Me. Yeah. So then I say, is it possible that Patrick and Mark Hansen knew George Hodel? Is it possible that they were all running in the same underground mm-hmm. Lord knows what was going on group, groups, whatever. Yeah, It just feels to me, again, to the point that you made before, I agree with you. I think that there has to have been multiple people, multiple people that definitely know, multiple people probably moving her or being involved in some way. Um, you got to have a doctor. I do believe that it's like, I don't no. think that someone could just guess at that or if somebody like... No. Is it possible that this Leslie Dillon character, you know, is it possible that someone who was like really into this, you know, stuff could have read enough books? Maybe, but I I would go so far as to say no. I think there's a big difference between like reading about it and doing it. I think, again, sure. like you need someone who has the confidence and the, you know, God complex that goes along sometimes with some doctors, Um, surgeons, especially, obviously they talk about that a lot. You need to have the ability to put a knife into somebody to, to do surgery. Um, Sure. Not everybody could do that, obviously Uh, both, you know, on both sides of the coin. So again, it just feels to me like everyone who was listed could have been involved again and then you go back to like Norman Chandler. We know that there's a connection to the family. Is it possible that she had an abortion by him at some point and is not connected to this, but is connected to this? Like, it just feels like these people could have, most of these people could have all been connected to her. And and to that, I just feel like the buck stops at George Hodel. I, I just feel like while sure. I think that it's it's feasible that that multiple people were involved, I don't know. Does it feel like this was a bigger situation maybe but then again then i'm like this red character i'm like how do we know that his story is true mm-hmm. how do we know that what he said about her at the bill like who else places her at the biltmore are the timelines correct this female cop that says that she saw elizabeth and the times and the people yeah. how do we know that she's not in on it or being paid off or whatever the problem again becomes like when you start to deal with crooked cops and no one has any credibility. Again, yeah. If you can trust no one, then you can't believe anyone, right? So that's true. Anyway, those are my <laughs> rambling <laughs> thoughts. I'm obviously mm-hmm. very um oh, just totally fascinated by all of this. This entire thing is truly fascinating again as somebody who knew very little coming in um but again i just feel like there's there's a connection i do i believe again that george hodel 
Patrick O'Reilly, Mark Hansen, that all of them could be connected, that Mark Hansen could be the one who, like, that he was planning some sort of revenge fantasy because of his insane levels of jealousy and that that was part of this. Who knows? It just feels like, it feels like the truth. I think oftentimes it's like the simplest explanation is is the truth. And this one, it feels like it might not be the case. It feels like the most the most kind of convoluted explanation is actually the truth, which is heartbreaking. But where where do you land on all of it? Well, I'm going to warn you. I, I tried. I was running low on time and I, I didn't want to forget certain things. So I tried to do my like theory page as I was doing my notes. So it's, I don't know what it's going to be I when it, it comes out of my mouth. I love it. So the mob tried to take out Brenda Allen five weeks after Elizabeth's death and then five months after her death Bugsy Siegel is killed most likely probably by the mob is this all somehow connected to everything why is the timing so coincidental I don't know part of me also wonders George Hodel is he a big thing in this the only thing about him that makes me hesitate His son, who wrote the book about him, who's been very, very vocal that this is my father, this is what he's done, um, he feels like he's kind of grasping at straws to blame his father for something. His father, it has been proven, is a piece of shit. Right. No offense, Steve. I think you know. Um, (laughs) And I'm basing that just just on shit that your sister went through. But... um, It just seemed like when he came forward, he was like, I think this was my father. This is what I feel. And then it seemed like some people were like, oh, yeah, maybe. And then it felt like he was like, oh, so you don't, oh, so that you're not buying that? Okay. And then he was like, you know what? I think my dad is the Zodiac killer. Okay. He posted a sketch of the Zodiac killer side by side with his father to be like, look at how much they look alike. And I'll tell you, the sketch was almost identical, but I've never seen that sketch of the Zodiac killer before. There is a, there's like, I think two versions of a very, very similar sketch that most people know that they've seen of the Zodiac killer. And it looks completely different than the sketch he did a side by side with. So I don't know where that other sketch came from. I don't know how much I trust Steve at this point. I can't imagine a parent dying and then you find like photos of random women through their stuff. And it's like, I can't imagine how weird that is. Again, I'm not really convinced that that was Elizabeth in the photos, but I, who knows? Again, I'll post them so we can all decide. Now, is um, he also suggesting that on top of killing Elizabeth? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's convinced that his father is just full serial killer, has done so many things. Interesting. Um, I think George Hodel could have been involved somehow. He was just so gross, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was able to do something like that to another human being. So maybe I think somebody attacked her 
And I think they hit her over the head and I think they injured her face. And then after was like, I don't know what to do with her. And Creepo was like, ooh, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of it. And then like scrub the body, cut her in half. All like I think he was potentially that part. Um, because again, I think multiple people were involved in this. The Frenches who Elizabeth lived with for a while, as well as the last officer who saw Elizabeth, all said they saw Elizabeth with two men and a woman. What comes to mind for me is before Brenda Allen moved up in her world, in her operation, it was being run by Black Widow and two men. And when that house was raided, the police arrested two men and one woman. Don't know what happened to the men, but I know Anne left and Black Widow's gone. Brenda moves up. Did the two men get replaced with another two men? So was it Brenda and two other men who showed up who were at the French's house? Was it them who were seen supposedly by this officer? I mean, I have a lot of questions. Um, so could was Elizabeth part of Brenda's organization? I don't know. Um, did she learn something about Brenda's organization, possibly through a friend or through somebody that she had met? And people started getting concerned. If she starts talking about it, our operation is going to just fall apart. She was they were making nine grand a day back then, which is almost two hundred thousand dollars a day. They're going to do pretty much whatever they have to to keep that. Yeah. They're going to want that cash cow to keep going. So I can't imagine what they would do to a person if they thought they were a threat to that at all. Um, I've heard worse motives for murder. Um, I just think for me, it's not just a murder. It was the way the body was found. There was a brutality that looked like someone was almost grossly experimenting. There was something about that. If she was just found, you know, not cut in half, then maybe it's like, okay. Then maybe it was just someone was angry and it's a murder. But the, it was the cutting in half. It was the scrubbing her body. It was the draining the blood out. It was all of that. That there just is something so just particularly brutal about it that it feels like that was personal. Um, and also I want to point out Leslie Dillon was at one point a former mortician's assistant. Good point. So he would have been taught how to drain blood out of a body. So at least he might have had that part to him. I don't know. And then for some reason, also during all of this, I wrote down cookies, tough but fair. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> and she values trust above all else. Do you think it's possible... Yeah. Did she go with me on this? Yeah. That Elizabeth had potentially been working for Brenda or Brenda had been wanting her to work for her or something. Oh. And is it possible that Elizabeth gave it a go? And this is a wild speculation, so go with me on this. Sure. That Elizabeth gave it a go and then was like, I, this just isn't for me. And then Brenda was like, it doesn't work that way. You can't just, you don't have a choice anymore. Right. 
And Elizabeth is the first person to really defy her. So Brenda being the new kind of head of this criminal organization, this, you know, what have you, wanted to send a message to the rest of the people working for her. Don't fuck with me or look what's going to happen. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's again an extreme, uh, you know, I'm making a lot of leaps there, but who knows? Again, to your point, making what would be now roughly $200,000 a day. Yeah, that's there's a there's a lot of pressure there, you know, whether it was one of those things where they showed up in San Diego, basically like you can never you can never get away from us. See, we found you. Let's go. She says, no, I'm not. And they're like, okay, well, you're going to regret this. I don't know. That's that's my other question is how did they find her? Was it, you know, did she, she all, she did send, she wrote a letter to Mark Hansen's girlfriend early January. It was January 2nd or January 4th or something. And so I, she asked her to send her money. So she would have told her where to send it. And then, of course, Mark Hansen, from seeming the some sort of jealousy, is it possible he was like, well, I, there's no secrets here. So he finds out and then he lets Brenda know. And they show up at the house just days later. I mean. There's just it's. It's something about the fact that I think there are so many pieces to it, so many people that are involved to make it all happen. Yeah. And the fact that the majority of them are dead and will never have any sort of, they they will never pay for what they've done. And then if they were capable of that, who knows what they did that we don't know about. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, listen. Christy Oxborough, you killed it. You you knocked it out of the park, as you always do. Mm. You always do. And what I like is that, again, it, it didn't feel like it in the moment necessarily, but we started this episode talking about how you wanted to rent a backhoe and dig up <laughs> under that house, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Christian B's house in regards to the Madeline McCann case. And yeah. you did bring up roughly, in this case, we got to dig up underneath George Hodel's house, under the Snowden house. Because no one's ever excavated there. And so I feel like it feels very full circle to me that that's where we started this episode and part of where we got to in this episode. And and to that, that gives me hope that maybe one day there will be some sort of break in this case. And maybe even if we can't get, you know, justice, maybe we can at least get some answers because that feels like it would be something. Sure. Oof. Crap. Now I have to buy the Snowden house. Unfortunately, so, you do. This so is, I, can, I know this is already uh, gone from being the Cecil Hotel investment to the Snowden House investment, but I'm already feeling better about the amount of capital you're going to have to come up with in a quick amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> Cookies is going to have to get into that secret casino faster <laughs> than I planned. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Like, I just feel like Cookies is the kind of, like, there's going to be like a, a hard ass guy that's like, hey, cooks. And I'm like chomping on my gum and I'm like, yeah, what? This Him and I have a real rapport. <laughs> oh, you're going to be Cookie Chomper the third? 
Oh, that. Things keep coming back to this episode from other episodes. It's like it's like a snake eating its own tail. You know what I mean? It feels very much like we're we just somehow unintentionally did a best of season one and two in, in an episode that we're considering season three. Yep. And that's yeah. the magic. That's the true creme and cocktails magic right there. Uh, listen, dear listeners, we thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the show. We so appreciate all of you. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little bit more, we offer a lot of bonus content over on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. There's bonus episodes, live Q&As that are three hours long once a month. It's the highlight of every month for us. Uh, so check that out if you're interested in that. And also, truecrewmerch.com the only place to get True Crime and Cocktails merch. Uh, so please head over there, get the blankets, literally and figuratively, right now. Um, Christy, is there anything I've, I've I've missed? Is there anything in this episode that you wanted to get to that I have bulldozed us away from? Anything else? Closing thoughts? Um, the only... <laughs> She's not cookies anymore. The only thing I could think of was, okay... We're we're heading to that. We're heading on that road, and we're getting to a point. And she's gonna say, "Do you want to tell the people what the next episode is?" And I'm like, "Fuck! I'm gonna have to be like, I don't remember what we discussed." Um, <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was usually uh, that it we spoke about it before, and I, I remember. Yeah. I don't remember what our decision was. Sure. Um, but then at least usually at the last break, we're like, "Okay." And then this is what we have left. And then we do this. And then we, then we're in. And uh, we, we didn't, didn't review. That's we true. Did not, we didn't do we a did review. Not do. <laughs> that and, is very true. Uh, without Cookie's um, confidence, <laughs> I'm, I'm just the dumb dumb over here going, I, I just genuinely don't remember. <laughs> don't remember what it is so at some point uh soon when we talk about the next episode know that if you throw it here i'm gonna tennis racket that right back at you because i because i don't know (laughs) well listen on that note yes on the next true crime and cocktails lizzie borden Jesus, of course. That's where we ended up. That's what I thought we ended up on. That is where we ended up. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm a mess. <laughs> Listen, you're, you're my mess. You're a beautiful mess. <laughs> and we're better having you in our lives. Do you oh. want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. <laughs> Again, we're bringing everything back. <laughs> I agree. Good night, Dave Grohl. <laughs>